0: Hello, this is Anna, co-founder of the Final Ghost Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the podcast, every season on this show, we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism, looking at a particular trope in depth. And in this current season, we are talking about the most elegant and the horniest of movie monsters, The Vampire. In each episode, I'm joined by a special guest to dive deep into a vampire movie or two. We discuss the films in detail, try to contextualize them, and think about what works and what doesn't. In today's episode, and I've been waiting for this one for a while, we've got a jumbo epic deep dive into the entire Blade trilogy. We go from the 1998 original film based on the Marvel comic book character via Guillermo del Toro's 2002 sequel to finish off with a passionate reclamation of the much maligned third entry, Blade Trinity. The entire franchise stars the incredible Wesley Snipes as the titular character, a damn fear, a half vampire, half human, dedicated to killing as many vampires as possible. That's as much as I'll give away in terms of plot because if you have not seen Blade, drop everything you're doing right now and watch it immediately. It is the most fun way to spend any evening or morning, day, whatever. Just watch them. I'm joined in this episode by the brilliant writer, podcaster, producer and Blade mega fan, Jordan Grusciola. We've been waiting for Blade O'Clock for months now and it's finally happened. I hope you have this entire Vampire season is made possible with the support of our friends at Our Video, who bring the very best in cult horror genre films to amazing deluxe home entertainment editions, with newly commissioned artwork and specially curated extras. They've got a massive collection of over 500 physical releases, and we are picking out a film from that collection to go with each episode, and this week, Our pick is another 90s horror classic. A terrifying, truly terrifying take on urban legends and gentrification. Based on a Clive Barker story, our pick this week is Candyman truly one of the greatest horror films of the 1990s, newly restored and available in Blu-ray from Arrow Video. Also to be said, we have extra episodes landing on our Patreon, so if you're able to and you would like to support us over there, head over to patreon.com forward slash the final girls. We've got some more goodies over there and a lot more coming over and a lot more coming soon. With that said, if you're new to the podcast, please know that we discuss the films in detail pretty much from the very beginning. So if you're averse to any discussion of a film before you watch it, consider this your spoiler warning. And if you really don't mind and you need for some reason convincing to go watch Blade, please enjoy our in-depth discussion of the entire Blade trilogy. Jordan, it's such a pleasure to have you back.
1: I am so happy to be back, as you well know, because I would like for everybody listening out there to know that we are already into our, we are entering our third hour of conversation (laughs) at this point, so we are engaged, we are ready to go, (laughs) the vibe is set, yes.
0: The vibe is set for Blade O'Clock to (laughs) finally happen. (laughs) Yes!
1: Yes! That is how that is how listener um we got the final scheduling piece of this underway. Anna DM'd me last week and was like, It's it's blade o'clock. Are you ready to record <laughs> next week? I was like, Well, that's the best hour of any day, any time. So yeah. Sounds super.
0: I am not kidding. I think I've probably messaged you about this. I might have just like done that in my head, but I have been waiting been saving the blade films like i see them pop up because in the uk two of them are on amazon prime one yep. of them is on netflix they pop up constantly because all i'm doing right now is watching vampire movies
1: oh so the algorithm like and it's been Constant. it's come out the, the first movie got its 4k like re-release mm-hmm. with a steelbook um I, 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 here in the states everywhere i don't know how regional dvds work but so i feel like i've been seeing a lot of blade renewed blade talk on my timeline over here as well because mm. i got that for christmas so also and then if nice. the algorithm is hitting you, I'm I'm thrilled to see Blade coming back into the consciousness as it so rightfully deserves to.
0: Me too. And I just like to point out that I've been like saving watching it, because every time, pretty much since before Christmas, I was like, Oh, can I is it blade o'clock already? Can <laughs> yeah, I watch the blade, blade, blade movies? It
1: already? Yeah. <laughs> it's
0: like, no, you have to save it for the podcast, mm-hmm. be fresh okay. for the conversation with Jordan. And it's finally fucking blade o'clock. <laughs> so
1: these were were these your first watches or were these rewatches for you?
0: Oh, no, rewatches. watches Okay, just no.
1: Yeah.
0: I have seen the Blade yeah. films.
1: You watch all the things.
0: I've seen them multiple times. Got it. Uh, one of them in cinemas, okay. Blade Trinity.
1: Yep, that's the one I saw in about. theaters. That's the one I saw yes. in theaters.
0: But I, ha- I have to admit, I haven't revisited them in about maybe five years. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Maybe a bit longer. But before we properly dig into all the blade films Mm -hmm. and we're gonna try to talk about each film individually but they will weave one into another jordan what is your relationship in general with vampire films is it a subgenre of horror that you enjoy
1: i do i i don't it's not um one that i feel like i need to be a completist about like i Mm -hmm. i i take them as they are i enjoy them i certainly respect the fact that you know, as far as horror goes, Dracula is really our horror monster. Um, and, and, and there is a great, there is a great sentence. There's a great explanation of Dracula. To me, it's a great explanation of Dracula in Blade Trinity, where Ryan Reynolds is trying to give Blade the breakdown of like, here's what we know about Dracula so far. We've got a piece of his armor. We've been able to synthesize what his body looked like. You know, he he's the he's the original he, you know, if you believe the myths, he was he was born in ancient Sumeria. He's given the whole rundown, and there is a line I have never forgotten that I love so much, where he says, "I don't even know if this is fucking true of sharks, but he says, like the great white shark, this guy has never had to evolve because he's he's a perfect specimen, he's a perfect creation,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: that is really that is Dracula, that that is the vampire sort of, you know, I I, I you know, one wants to see." innovation around the way a, a vampire story is told certainly in cinema but the what a what a vampire is 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 it's if that is true scientifically haven't fact checked it a great white shark it has never had to evolve really and you got to respect that like the mm-hmm. what what um what frost what deacon frost is in blade 1 what what um you know what is that is that it's Dominic, is that Dominic Purcell? Dominic is, Purcell, yeah, Dominic yeah the prison break
2: dude.
1: Yep, Dominic Purcell as Drake, Dracula um, mm-hmm. in Blade Trinity. There's obviously the second one has innovation in Creature because it's a Gerber del Toro movie. But you look at those two primary antagonists in Blade 1 and 3, mm-hmm. that's Bela Lugosi. That draws from the the, the 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 tradition of Dracula as we first saw him realized on screen in 1931 in the classic horror in like the beginning mm-hmm. the classic horror age in the at the Hollywood studios and it persists that is still the image through Lestat and through Interview in the Vampire in the 90s that is the image through like ever since Nosferatu we kind of left that haggard old bastard behind like what you saw in True Blood like that is that is the vampire that is how it populates mm-hmm. our in in lore and in our imaginations and that is impressive I know I mean that's
0: that's a world one tour of how Dracula and the vampire has evolved but I find it really interesting that you talk about Blade 1 Mm -hmm. for the purposes of clarity and Blade Trinity so let's start with let's start with the beginning let's start with Blade from 1999
2: you better wake up the world you live in is just a sugar-coated topic there is another world Beneath it, the real world. For thousands of years, they have existed among us. You keep your eyes open. They're everywhere. Chances are you've seen them yourself and didn't know it. A secret nation. Our livelihood depends on our ability to blend in with a lust for power. We should be ruling the humans. These people are our food. They've got their claws into everything. Politics, finance, real estate. There's a war going on out there. He makes the weapons. I use them. Now, one will lead them to conquer mankind. Tonight, the age of man comes to an end. We're gonna be gods. And one will try to stop him dead. There are worse things out tonight than vampires. Like what? Like me. Half-human. Blade's mother was attacked by a vampire while she was pregnant. Half-immortal. He got the best of both worlds. All our strengths. None of our weaknesses. He is their greatest fear. And our only hope. Soak and all vampires. snipes steven dorf you're one of them aren't you no i'm something else blade
0: so what's your relationship with the film itself when did you
1: first see it and do you ever visit it often we love blade in the crucial household (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we I was I was I've I've talked about this more and more lately. I was we were really I was raised on like action movies. The the movies nice. that my mom and dad most often agreed on, like at the video store we'd go pick something out mm-hmm. were Van Damme movies, Dolph Lundgren movies, Steven gall mm-hmm. movies. So like varying degrees of quality of action cinema. Like you have you have great you have great material in there, like Universal Soldier and Bloodsport. Um the original Under Siege, like th- those are solid action hits of the '90s. Then, like you have the down market stuff, which I think there's one called like Desert Heat that Jean Claude Van Damme did. Like so, up and down the spectrum of quality, we just liked fight movies, and mm-hmm. then we loved Wesley Snipes. We loved Wesley Snipes. As I've gotten older, even I have revisited my love of Wesley Snipes, and it has intensified so much more. Wesley Snipes is the king of the '90s to me. I love that man. His range, comedically. Basically, as an action star, as a dramatic presence, which is so underappreciated about him. He the range that this man has and the the incredible amount of entertainment in a span of 10 years that he packed into films from the late 80s through the 90s. Mm-hmm. I I abs- I was part of the screen drafts team that did the Wesley Snipes draft on that podcast, and it was so much fun to just shout about what an underrated range this guy has. And we love a superhero movie in my house too, like the, the X Men films that came out. It like the first X Men film that came out. What was that was that like ninety eight or nine or was that early two thousands? Was we, the year two thousand? Year two thousand. We love that shit in my house. Like, give us this red meat action fantasy. Yes, and Blade. Fuck, this movie is so good. This movie is a great vampire movie. This movie is a great action movie. This movie is a great dry comedy at points. This movie is a great sci-fi fantasy movie. This is, to me, one of the, this is, I think, one of the great American genre films ever made for all of the things that it is and does so well at once. Mm -hmm. With the perfect cast, like, Stephen Dorff as Deacon Frost is a fucking all-timer villain. His villain chemistry with Blade the hero. It's so cool. Like, here in the States, Blade came out in 1998. It just beat The Matrix. And mm-hmm. this movie, to me, is in a an amazing combination of the kinds of cool that I feel radiating off of both The Matrix that I think really defined that, like, 90s sort of cyberpunk infused like dystopia ultra cool like modern technology infused before technology was ubiquitous so it was like exotic and weird and it was a type it was a type of
0: cool that has since um a lot of movies especially more like genre movies have mm-hmm. attempted to imitate mm-hmm. and very very few have succeeded in making it breathe cool what i like to call the like the new metal trash cinema yeah like oh like yeah. queen new of the damn hard like what new metal was for music, yeah. new metal cinema was for genre cinema. Like Queen of the Damn tries to be yep. Blade, but like kind of emo,
1: yeah, and fails yeah. at that. No, I think I think a perfect compliment to this, which is like when I say the blend, I think it's mm. of the what we saw afterwards in the Matrix and what we see now in John Wick. I oh. think the way that Blade, especially Blade One establishes immediately this parallel reality to the one we live in that is rich and realized and expansive every in both blade and john wick you have this like techno gothic sensibility and you feel like every time you enter a new room there are 50 doors going off of it there's a Mm -hmm. hallway in each one that leads to another fully realized and developed room like the sort of Baroque modern mythology, the way that it is, is realized and brought to life. I feel like mm-hmm. that same kind of immediate establishment of this subterranean world that is as densely populated and in and and art directed as our own sort of up in the daylight world, you know, these, mm-hmm. these underworlds that exist with with the Wick and the Blade universes, the way that first movie just drops you in and you immediately mm-hmm. believe it's real from that first legendary opening oh my sequence God. at the blood rave you're all in you're like holy shit vampires are real they're they're coming out at night and they have a whole like upside down world basically that mirrors our own that they are living in every day holy shit this is real this is happening and blade makes you feel that
0: They're not just real, but there are so many of them and they've been around for so long that they've got systems established for themselves, not just to feed themselves Mm -hmm. and not be uh, outed, Mm -hmm. but also to have fun. Mm -hmm. They've adapted the modern world to suit their needs, hence Blood Rave. And I genuinely... That first scene...
1: Oh, It's one of the best openings ever in cinema history. It's one of the best... 100%. Not in action not in mm-hmm. whatever you want to subclassify in ever, ever. and ever. i we we cannot we cannot um divorce that from the pure charisma of tracy lords as as a as a vampire trapping a man and taking him to his doom at the blood rave i mean tracy lords in that the only problem i have honestly with first blade is that tracy lords doesn't exist throughout the entire <laughs> that she does not exist throughout the entire movie as like the lesbian counterpart to Mercury, to, to Arlie Jones' yeah. character because I, them as like a great thruple Mercury, Tracy Lord's character and mm-hmm. Deacon Frost would have been so hot the entire time.
0: She should have come back like Whistler does <laughs> yeah. for the, whole, for <laughs> That's the next so films. So so, but that scene also is probably one mm-hmm. of the best introductions of a lead character. Oh. Again, in cinema history.
1: Wow. That's like a so, fucking drag queen entrance when Blade comes I mean, into the Blood Rave. That is an epic event.
0: It's, there's so much. So let's talk about both <laughs> Blade as a character yeah. and Mr. Wesley Slipes, mm-hmm. who brings the the legacy of his career and his star persona at that time, yep. which is not to be underestimated, mm-hmm. but also all of the different facets of his of his abilities that mm-hmm. you were just mentioning before. Let's talk about his blade.
1: Wesley Snipes is doing so much as it's the performance is so extra. Like he and it, like it, it it's so magical because it's like it's like a camp level of commitment to this batman voice and he's doing this very really like <laughs> nolan-esque batman voice and like the the incredible like 90s leather rave outfits and the <clears throat> the sternness that is like humorless to the point of one dimensional and yet all of it is natural it is effortless it is cool it is evocative like you Feel, it, it's big dick energy like you feel <laughs> this you feel the magnetic power of this man rating data screen you're like holy shit it's the daywalker like hmm. you believe much like you immediately believe this subterranean universe of vampirism is eternal and real as soon as you are introduced to this world in blade you immediately are like oh so Wesley Snapes has just been a Wesley Snapes has been a daywalker this whole time acting. As a sidekick, because what he really is, is a human hybrid vampire slayer that is unfuckwithable. Like, he he even, like, you watch this now and his, like, anybody with less confidence and certainty in this role, the clothes would look silly now. Like, it would feel mm-hmm. dated now. Like, you watch it and it's so gloriously... You know, late 90s in the way that you see like the the kind of open unbuttoned shirt that Stephen Dorff is wearing and the like white on white on white outfit that we meet Mercurium with. She has like frosted lipstick on and her hair is platinum white. Like there's so much that is so gorgeously 90s about this, but in a way that it feels like a period piece. It doesn't feel mm-hmm. like, oh, this is a time gone by. But like that was so cute looking at the just the aesthetic of blade now and it even happens again in 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 trinity too like so many years removed from the original where you look at those clothes and you're like i would make a gag about this like on twitter while i live watch if wesley snipes didn't make it look so goddamn cool like i don't even feel the need to be like lol guys 1998 when i look at this because i'm like nope Drop that blade in any era, and that's what Wesley Snipes' blade is gonna wear. It doesn't matter if it's 2021, it doesn't matter if it is 1998, this is what blade looks like, because this is what, we- this is how Wesley Snipes, as far as I'm concerned, invented blade. This is not a Marvel creation. Wesley Snipes invented blade, and that is just how completely, I think an, a, a a thing that I feel like the broader conversation around, around Snipes Like, there's such a specific thing that I would like to talk about him Mm -hmm. with with him, which is his fight charisma. Like, there's a reason. Like, Jason Statham is pure, like, energy and, like, sex appeal. I love the stave. One of the reasons, one of the key reasons he is as successful as he is is because he has that. And because his fight chemistry on screen is so good. He is such a good film fighter. And I watched Wesley Snipes movies throughout the 90s. And the physical energy and awareness of his body, the particular flair, like physical idiosyncrasies that come with a Wesley Snipes fight in anything from Passenger Fifty Seven to Drop Zone to to like, which I think reaches its crescendo in this to a Demolition Man. There is a kind of verve. In the way that he fights, and I know I could get crucified by, like, action people for saying this, but, like, in the way that you watch Bruce Lee, he's not Bruce Lee, but in the way that you watch Bruce Lee fight, and not only is he, like, he is a legendary martial artist, he's an incredible athlete, tactician, Bruce Lee was a screen fighter, too. Like, he was a legitimately incredible fighter, martial artist, who on screen was an incredible, gorgeous, balletic screen fighter. And the charisma and the pop that came off of him in fight scenes it's so much of what made you want to keep watching him not just because the feats of physical accomplishment were amazing but you just watch him, you're like oh my god look at the look at the swagger coming off of this man and the swagger that comes off of wesley snipes mm-hmm. as a screen combat presence and then you put it in the hard hardened shell of somebody so stylized as blade the particular way like His body pops and jerks when he's in a combat scene. That is Mm -hmm. unique to Snipes. You have the fight choreography, and then you have the unique to Snipes aspect of how he just looks when he's kicking someone's ass in a movie. It's undeniable. It's undeniable kind of power.
0: I think there's also another element to his uh, on-screen charisma and his on-screen... embodiment of blade is Mm -hmm. his stillness yes and i think the way that he remains still Mm -hmm. in a mass especially in that first opening scene but it happens continuously throughout the film and Mm -hmm. especially in the subsequent films when there's a lot of stuff happening around yeah. him, a lot of moving bodies, whether they're in in a fight mode mm-hmm. or whether they're in a rave or whatever it is, he has this unique ability to be completely still mm-hmm. and still command not just your attention mm-hmm. but also fear and even, I don't I, I genuinely do not understand how he does this mm-hmm. to be funny without moving a single muscle or doing anything anything!
1: anything! Like it, how, how much, how much ability do you have in just the way you can manipulate your mm-hmm. voice to not do a single other thing and be able to say the words, some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill and have it not seem hokey or hackney. Like, that line is badass as shit.
2: Some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill.
1: And he is doing nothing when he (laughs) delivers it. It is incredible. I've
0: never seen anything like this in any action film. Ever. (laughs) I might have not seen enough, but there was a particular scene in 2, and I know that I was gonna try to contain these i'm the <laughs> one jumping ahead but there's I'd a particular discipline
1: <laughs> i'm like don't start talking about blade <laughs> trinity
0: <laughs> but on the subject of his humor and his ability to infuse a stillness with humor is mm-hmm. there's a particular scene in two when he is having his little his little um like oh god what's the word he's having his little like playful bands with yeah, Reinhard yeah, with yeah. ron perlman's character ron Perlman, he doesn't yeah. he doesn't do anything and then you're laughing and it's just, it's just a smirk. He just needs to smirk ever so lightly. And it is the funniest moment in the entire film.
1: Well, and he has like, he, like his vocal range is quite big. And so when mm. you, like when Wesley Snipes gets animated and gets high pitched, like, he's very like entertaining to watch. And, but he's so low down the entire time that there are these occasional moments where the voice goes up a bit and becomes more human again. And mm-hmm. it just acts, it just, off, it just accents. It, it serves as accent pieces when he does that. I forget whether it's one or three, where there's this one moment where he like looks askance the way he does. Because Blade is looking straight ahead so often, it's noteworthy when he turns his head from one side to the other. So when he turns his head to look at something, you know he's really clocking it. Mm-hmm. And I forget which one, one or three, where he just looks at something and he just goes, Oh, it's you! And his voice kind of peaks up a little bit, and it's so funny because he hasn't done that with his voice the entire time. (laughs) And it's just like it really, like like you said with the stillness. It's why I love. It's why I love this franchise so much. Even the most maligned three, Mm -hmm. because he's the constant. Mm -hmm. You have everything is organized around Blade, and as long as I have Wesley Snipes being Blade him reacting to whatever is going on around him is what I am there for. That is what I care about. You can Mm -hmm. have the craziest monsters Gael Del can design. I am still more interested in how Wesley Snipes is going to choose to respond to something as Blade than I am any of the madness around him. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, in the midst of a a comic book vampire franchise, the, the, um, the way that that speaks to his power on screen, whether he is in an electric fight scene, or he is standing still amidst chaos, or he's delivering a dry one-liner, or he is just, like, growling wordlessly exposing his vampire fangs, I'm so, it's so compelling. He is, the he is throughout, never less compelling in any installment of that series.
0: So let's talk a little bit about how he sits in relation to this vampire world. Mm-hmm. Like you mentioned, from the very, from the very first scene, we're we're establishing this upside down world that coexists with the human reality, mm-hmm. and very quickly we're given a shit ton of information about how vampires operate, yeah, and how long mm-hmm. they've operated on, and what their particular politics are. Mm-hmm. So how do you think *Kind of Blade* builds a whole vampire ecosystem within just the first film?
1: I mean it even as the second movie gets so expansive
2: mm-hmm.
1: I don't it's not I don't have an issue with that I like going into these more you know sort of ornate settings but I like so much and I think like you were saying so many sort of imitators come off of something like Blade John Wick is such a is such a rare example of doing that so completely it still feels... What those movies have managed to do is no matter how much bigger in each installment of John Wick, the world gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it all still feels so intimate all the time. You always still feel like you're in this closed-circuit place that everything is under control and managed, which gives the sort of implicit notion in your head that the people who made these things have such a clarity of purpose and a clarity of vision in what they're doing that it never feels messy and I think uh, what the first one does so well is it's so tight and it's so efficient. And I love like from the the way it takes ordinary. I think a strength of the the that first one is the way that it takes ordinary places and makes them just wrong enough to feel to feel amiss or just wrong enough to feel like they're not a part of our human experience. Like when you you go to the you know you're essentially in like the basement of like a meat locker. At the blood rave, well then it becomes a fucking blood rave. And then you like, you see the council of like the elder vampires. Another brilliant thing this movie did is it put Udo Kier, Udo Kier in it. And anytime mm-hmm. you put Udo Kier in a movie, you're making a statement of how weird you want it to be. And that's a statement that I will always get down with. I watched one movie at the Sundance Film Festival because I can only afford to buy one ticket. And I was like, I want to watch something weird. Oh, this has Udo Kier in it. This is the movie that I'm going to watch. Because like I knew it would be sufficiently strange as long as it was in it. So like you have this council of vampires that's just sitting in a con- like a dark concrete room. That you're just like, it feels, it, it feels like a, it feels immediately like a seat of power. There's nothing interesting about this room other than the people sitting at the table. And the way there's a, I really like how in any time you get like an urban, like wide shot in a Blade movie, all the mo- all the buildings look like they're made of liquid. Like, the glass is so shiny, and the metal is so polished. Like, it does these pans around buildings, and it looks like everything is made of water. It's so glisteny and slick. And that is sort of, to me, a little microcosm of how this movie manages to make everything glisteny and slick, even when it's not. There's a scene where steven like deacon is sitting in like the like a computer center like he's in the like archives of like their vampire texts and he's decoding the old aramaic of the scripts to learn how to bring back the blood god all this that and the other i don't know how it looks so cool he's sitting in a white goddamn box he's sitting Mm -hmm. in a white box with an old at this point old ass computer and it's like ooh, the future there's nothing overdone about that room when you meet pearl this movie does such a good job of introducing its characters. When you meet Tracy Lord's character, when you meet Blade, when you meet Mercury, when you meet Frost, when you meet Quinn, fucking Donald Lowe as Quinn, each entrance kind of in like sears the character in your mind, and you're ready to see more of them throughout the movie. When you meet in Boucher Wright, like it does such a good job of immediately making you interested in how mm-hmm. much more there is to know about each one of these people. And when you meet Pearl, like, you've done so much already, you've established his vampire role that he's gone on the creepy walk through that nightclub where there are a bunch of, like, it practically looks like teenagers singing in schoolgirl suits to a bunch of, like, businessmen smoking in blue light, and it's very upsetting. Well, they go into the bowels of this facility, and there is Pearl, the gargantuan, sedentary vampire who is sort of it seems like a piece of institutional a a very reliable person of institutional knowledge for frost to tap into because he's trying to decode these old scriptures and pearl is the closest thing to sort of the supernatural like outside of the vampire itself the closest thing to like what we would see in blade 2 with an elaboration on like oh the creatures are evolving and they're becoming this like whole other very unhuman looking thing like you see pearl and it's like fuck are we gonna meet dragons too like how is pearl real the sound of pearl's voice the size of pearl's body the grotesqueness of like the bodily functions that you're seeing in there and so it just does a great job of creating the sense of normalcy and then injecting enough things that are ever more extraordinary to make you be like oh fuck there's more there's more to find out so like when we When the um, nurse at the hospital gets attacked, and we learn later in the movie that he doesn't die, and he's been thrown in a pit where he's turned into this, like, sort of an, an, an accident, it seems like, that happens every so often when you turn a person, they don't become fully vampire, but they are no longer human and they are not dead, so they basically become these sort of parasites that they just, like, feed rats to and become these, like, you know, we throw we throw people down in this pit and they eat anything, so mm-hmm. this creature's gonna eat you. We see him later on, and he becomes another anomaly in this world that has started to feel so normal to us. So it keeps reminding you that there's more to know, that there's an infinite amount of knowledge here, that, like, well, we just have to get further into the world to figure it all out. And you feel that way clear up until the end of the movie.
0: What's really interesting about what you're saying is that it shows both the glossy, sexy side of that vampires that we're really used to seeing. Yeah. yeah. Because we get like the, the, the corporate pure blood b- vampires yes, as they yes. refer to themselves versus mm-hmm. kind of more the, Early dot com boom, like mm-hmm. startup CEOs, kind yep. of embodied by Deacon disruptors, Frost. the disruptors, yeah, the disruptors, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like with the with the big fringe and the open white shirt yeah. and the slacks and everything and the, the attitude, the tacky and also new de- money. Yeah. And Deacon Frost is smoking, by the way. I love the idea that vampires are smoking in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's like, you know, the disruptors, the old money. And then there's so many other ways of being a vampire that are quite grotesque, that are not appealing. This is not something yeah. somebody chooses to be. So the narrative that we're usually fed in like these movies is mm. it's sort of glamorous, a bit sad, a yeah. bit tragic, but it looks good. You will look great forever. You'll yes. be young forever. And here, there's all these other options because you see the glamorous kind of turning of hot young vampires like Deacon Frost and his cronies. Yeah. But then you also see the really... Awful, grotesque process of healing yep. after they get maimed. You hear all the possi- all the sort of quote-unquote, like the possibilities of how they can evolve that they can't control. Not mm-hmm. everybody will turn in the same way. Mm-hmm. So it's like this is a world that you can see is expanding, evolving, aka mm-hmm. like they are evo- like they are also in constant evolution the same way as humans are. Yeah. it kind of makes it more under not understandable. It makes it more of a constant fleshy Mm -hmm. villain for blade to rail against because and to also internally constantly keep himself in check to not fully go over to the vampire side yeah no i
1: i think that's a great point
0: so what do you think then about um let i kind of really want to talk about deacon frost
1: (laughs) oh (laughs) deacon frost (laughs)
0: He is just, I really miss actors like Steven Dorff who just completely go balls out with the role. Oh, yeah. And it's like, this is a bad dude. This is a villain. You just need to completely embody the villain aside. There is no depth. There is no questioning. No. He's just, he is a horrendous villain in the best possible way.
1: And he just, he happens to just physically, I think few actors tasked with playing a vampire ever have done a better job working their mouth around their teeth. The way... Because it affects the way your mouth moves. It affects the way you mm-hmm. speak. And the way Stephen Dorff works around his fang inserts, it actually feels like a part of... It feels like a part of his just physical choreography. And the way he moves his mouth and sneers. I think is just so incredibly effective because there's kind of like, you know, it there there ends up being a bit of an awkwardness if you have long fangs with the way the bottom lip and the jaw interact with them in a way that it's hard to make that look graceful. So the mouth just has to stay open, sort of. So you just have a bunch of people walking around mouth breathing, and you have to find a way to make that look cool and sexy. And Deacon Frost manages to make this kind of open mouth posture and constant ominousness seem entirely fluid to the character and that Mm -hmm. perfect there's that perfect interaction where they're in the park deacon has slathered himself with sunscreen and he's gonna go meet blade for a confrontation and it's one of the few, like, real daylight... It's, it's of course, like, the only daylight interaction we're gonna get between these two characters. And so you see him, like, menacing at Blade and he's threatening a child. And that's how he's sort of, like... I, I, the, there are multiple occasions in this movie that someone, like, takes a kid hostage and, like, gets Blade to comply. So you see Blade across the park and Deacon is just doing his best to summon being an absolute dickhead to Blade and telling him that the end is near and this is futile. And just being such an asshole... And Blade in his just perfect nonchalance as the sun like he's out in the sun longer just says, your mascara's running. Because his <laughs> sunscreen starts dripping down his face. And no matter how no matter what kind of swinging dick Deacon Frost thinks he is, he's still only got about a minute in the sunshine before he's gotta mm-hmm. go hightail it. So Blade ultimate just the dem- the power move that that is, and watching just like the Fury register on deacon's face this like he came out of he came out of nowhere with this role like steven dorf had this role it's like shit man why didn't why didn't we get decades more of this like how what who who missed the mark in getting steven dorf to go all out like a just just like a, a supreme villain extraordinary in this way i i mourn what we have not gotten from steven dorf in, like, more sci-fi fantasy. Where was he in the Underworld franchise for, like, seven installments? Just, like, <laughs> dripping, dripping with, like, being sinister.
0: Where was he in True Blood? Everybody Where? got cast in True Blood.
1: You know who I don't need? Vampire Bill. Ever. I do need... <laughs> I hate Vampire Bill. I do need... Where was his big bad? Like, that would have been so good to have steven dorf come back and just be hissing things like basically topping eric northman making bill look like a bigger joke than he already was like yes
0: i want vampire steven dorf to come back and have a like a big dick energy off with vampire christopher maloney because yes! that was another surprising Jesus. turn of true blood
2: <laughs> good
1: lord and like ha- like sarah newland would go from like feeder captive in a basement at the end of that show to just being deacon's girl to just being stevendorf's girlfriend like sarah newland mm. and Steven Dorf as a vampire that would have been a wonderful pairing
0: but true blood aside um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um there is something about blade that really kind of um I really wanted to touch with you upon and it's his core human relationships because the tension at the center of blade is always this dynamic of him being half in the human world half in the vampire world and not and being reviled not really belonging to either one of them Mm -hmm. and hence having a bit more power over both of those worlds but what about his core relationships and in this film it's obviously whistler Mm -hmm. but it's also his mother and it's also dr karen jensen
1: karen dr karen no i and that is it's where Two kind of it's a thing about two that I always had a hard time getting on board with because what they try and do in two is give him more of an outright romantic interest like Mm -hmm. they they like work a love story in, and it's not that Wesley can't do it. It's just that having Blade be vulnerable in such the way that they have him do, I I think it actually takes away from the character Mm -hmm. because Blade isn't without vulnerability to start. I don't think we need to make Blade more like likely to cry on screen to understand that he's a caring, feeling human being. and they do that so well in this where the the relationship between him and Whistler, I'm so glad they keep reviving Whistler throughout these I mean Jesus. they just how many times I and mean, in how many ways does Chris Christopherson <laughs> die in this franchise? And, like the one the most frail Purse character in the entire franchise, just like physically, he's old, he's sick. He keeps coming back to life, but like the tenderness of like that that hard won paternal, like father son kind of care between Chris Christopherson and Wesley Snipes is so good. And when uh, to hear you know you hear in that gravelly Chris, you know I'm sorry I got old on you, Blade. Like it's just, it so it stirs me. And then when he saves Karen, when he saves Dr. Karen, the relationship that grows between him and Moucher Wright throughout this movie is so satisfying. And she mm-hmm. gets to be like, it's unquestionably Blade's movie. She gets to be such a badass. Like yeah. Dr. Karen Jensen is fucking cool. And that she like starts by like they're, you know, trying to rescue her. She's been bit. She's like, well, fuck, I'm got to You know, I, it's early stage infection. Let me see if I can work up like a serum. To try and stop this from taking me over, she is immediately established in her intelligence, in her cunning, in her bravery. She's scared. There's a lot of crazy shit going on. One of my favorite moments in the first blade is when he's rescuing her and she gets her shoulder dislocated and he has to pop it back in. And she has that like amazing, like visceral scream moment. But like her confrontational relationship with him throughout that does evolve, like I what I one of my few regrets of this franchise is that she doesn't actually carry through to all of them Mm -hmm. and become like his whistler because they kind of set it up like she's going to become his whistler and I would have loved I would have loved to have seen that carry forward because Mm -hmm. of the like there's a tension between them and he cares for her it doesn't like it could be sexual or it could just be like a collegial like professional respect I I like the way that there was, the ways in which Blade has intimacy with people in this franchise. As, as, you know, this is a tangential thing, but as an ace identifying person, as somebody on the asexual spectrum, I always appreciate where relationships are fostered on screen in Mm -hmm. ways that deviate from just seeing who is having sex with who and who isn't, and dividing, like, intimacy, particularly between, like characters that could have sexual chemistry with one another and actually letting that be realized in different and in interest equally interesting ways. And I mm-hmm. think these movies do such a good job I think this movie in particular does such a good job of, of showing the ways that Blade does need connection and comfort in his life with the way he responds to his mother. Having Sanaa Lathan play his mother who is, she looks the same age now as she did then, but like watching that dynamic be, like, that's a perfect sort of vampire movie opportunity that they take advantage of so well in Blade 1, is, like, is it sexy? Should it be sexy? Is this inappropriate? Is this incest? What are the rules here? These are vampires. Like, there is this uncomfortable, and in a way that I think Interview with the Vampire did really well, playing with, like, sexual attraction and and romantic attraction and, and intimacy and friendship, this movie does a really good job when it brings back Blade's mom Mm -hmm. to be like, she has no maternal connection to him anymore she is vampire, she hasn't seen him his entire life, so there's this tenderness oh Eric, she calls him Eric, there's this tenderness between them and she uses that to to manipulate him, but Mm -hmm. then because she is not his mother anymore and she's something else, it becomes seduction, so by the time Blade is in that tomb where he's being bloodlet to have his juices summon summon the blood god to imbue deacon frost with like world dominating power she is like up to him touching his face and it's like oh this is a straight up horny moment but she's like definitely his mom but like that definitely doesn't matter and just the, the way in which it suspends human rules in that moment because these are not human beings is another great just implicit way that it establishes you're not dealing with homo sapiens right now you're dealing with something else and the rules are different
0: but i think it's also a very um emotionally crafty and manipulative way of weaponizing that Gray area that exists mm-hmm. with supernatural beings that are still presenting as humans, so totally. they still look hot. Mm-hmm. They still are present, and you know, vampires are the horniest of movie monsters. Oh maybe, yeah, which is what yeah. I've been saying at the beginning of every single episode of this series, mm-hmm. but. It's the ultimate manipulative trick by Mm -hmm. Deacon of fucking with Blade's mind. Mm -hmm. The vampire that he weaponizes against him is not any one of his henchmen or Mm -hmm. henchwomen. It's his mother Mm -hmm. who he has literally been keeping in some sort of like Minimalistic cocoon, yeah, ready yeah. to deploy her whenever he needed to uh, weaken Blade because he could not weaken him physically. Yeah, he could only reach to the side of him that he could not control. Which and is it's entirely possible of- that
1: he's been having mm-hmm. sex with Blade's mom for decades. So, like, I, mean, I think it's
0: pretty much like pretty explicitly implied.
1: Yeah, yeah, like th- it's also just like, hey, I, I, I not only like turned your mom and took her away from you, ever. I've also been fucking your mom. For decades, and now I'm gonna weaponize her against you Mm
2: -hmm. in this
1: weird psychosexual maternal way. It's so layered and crazy, and so like again, coolly handled. This is what we're explaining. It's like when we were talking about All Cheerleaders Die. The way it just I kept explaining things that were happening in the movie. I was like, Jesus, a lot happens in this Mm -hmm. movie. This is crazier than I thought. When you talk through things like this. Of what's going on on screen in Blade, you're like, shit, this is wild. But when you're watching it, it is all just like it kind of a middle register. And it's like, what? This is just life. This is just how things go. Of course it's crazy. There are vampires.
0: But also, that's the level of weirdness that you need to get to yep. to make both a character as cool as Blade and yep. a performer as like downright powerful and cool as Wesley Snipes is in yep. that role mm-hmm. to feel visibly physically uncomfortable on screen
1: yep yep that and that is like that is to that is a there's always like a moment of vulnerability and an extraordinary Mm. vulnerability in a blade movie where he he just loses his defenses his defense mechanisms or he sheds the facade for just long enough to like do something that like oh my gosh he's 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 being so he's being so sweet and tender and Mm. when you see him bound And imprisoned like, that you see him truly weakened for the only time that he's going to be in this movie. And he's physically weakened because he's being drained. But the thing that's taking the biggest toll on him in that moment is being confronted with his mother. And having Mm. this loss of his, this grave loss of his exploited. And this love he feels is what tethers him to his human experience. It's what prevents him from fully, as he is always told, the thirst always wins. It's what prevents him from succumbing to the thirst. And continuing to take the serum and fight back that half of his being. It is, but it is also amazing. There's also those moments where Blade at his most powerful is when he does succumb. Blade mm-hmm. at his most powerful is when he gives in to the monstrosity and lets that power him through like a pivotal scene because when he's being bled out, he, he gets rescued by Karen. And she's like, you're depleted, you have to feed on me. And he knows that that's a real slippery slope because it's pretty hard to stop, I would imagine, drinking blood once you start. And so, but he does, he like takes her by the neck and he's drinking her blood and she is just like, you see the life leaving her body and you see him becoming ravenous. And then he Mm. does that, like, you know, the stretch and like build toward the camera and scream and he, you know, frost and he's off on a mission he, he could have killed all those people. He could have killed all those vampires if he was Daywalker Blade. But when he is powered by the rage and the thirst, he is actually at his most impressive. And I think that is an amazing in a hero character, in a black hero character, too.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the reclamation of monstrosity, the reclamation of otherness as something that is a point of power as something that is what makes you extraordinary, is something that is what moves you above and beyond your, your obstacles and the competitors around you. And to see in a hero, the monstrous being turned into an asset that he then, it's not a matter of, because he doesn't he doesn't like the vampire half of himself, but he also relishes that he is probably the most powerful being in the entire world. And well, and, the, and him, there's a choice. He yeah. does
0: have to make the choice ultimately to either be cured completely and give yeah. up his vampire side or choose to remain in the in between but yep. still be able to be on this righteous path of of killing vampires.
1: And that he ultimately is in control, he is ultimately in control. Like, even when he he relinquishes himself to the thirst and he does drink from Karen, at the end of the movie, he's not some, like, rabid beast wandering around the movie looking for his next fix. He's like, all right, give me the serum. We're putting that back in the box. It's there when I need it. But I'm Blade and I'm fucking in charge of who I am. And I am in control of my power.
0: And then before we move on to Blade (sighs) 2... wanted to talk about we kind of mentioned the the fact that it is incredibly stylish Mm -hmm. in a very late 90s almost early 2000s way
1: yeah in a real chill chill out room at the rave kind of look yeah and and even though
0: the effects are dated and they look off the time it the violence does not feel dated and it still feels so Fucking impressive! Mm-hmm. So, we, before we move on to the next film, I really wanted to talk about that final scene, that oh, yeah. final confrontation with Deacon Frost, where everything just hits the fan—the mythology of the vampires, Yep, um, Blade's control over himself and even control over his thirst, mm-hmm. and that final confrontation between him and Frost. What did that you
1: think of it? I I love that when when Deacon becomes you know and they they clearly are using the effects of the the era you have like the vampires vaporizing and stuff like that but I really am so glad that when Deacon becomes the blood god when he becomes imbued with the blood god that he doesn't take a different form he j- his eyes go red like mm-hmm. it it allows this you 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 know you understand what has happened but you don't have to deal with the rubbery 1998 cgi of like blade fighting a creature that is beyond the scope of what the movie would have been able to credibly render especially Mm in a in a mostly well-lit fast moving action scene and so that what is so great about that scene even though like steven dorf is no wesley snipes in terms of like the physical prowess of like a screen fighter what that scene boils down to is you've had this incredible hero villain tension. Like they really do feel essential to each other. They really do feel like two sides of the same coin. And you have this excellent fight that has just enough addition of trickery and camera work to like speed things up and make things look a little bit more supernatural because you have fully blood satisfied blade and you have blood God Deacon and the meat of that fight, you don't have to have it be like the stathe versus Snipes. You don't need Scott Adkins versus Snipes to make it compelling because you're so invested in their hero-villain tension that it's just awesome to see them. Fu- you've been waiting all movie to get these two in the ring with each other and the fact that they put them in a physical arena, basically, to have them do battle and that you have Blade, like you've got Blade with the sword. He doesn't because so often in the movies he has like a turtleneck or like some sort of like active compression wear underneath his vest. And this is just Blade in his vest with his fucking Wesley Snipes arms fully unsheathed underneath. And he is a beautiful man. Wesley Snipes is a beautiful man. And I think a thing we can't really say enough about is how, how able he is to create a connection between himself and the audience for three whole movies while wearing mostly sunglasses <laughs> you seeing his eyes in these movies it's like the exception to the rule but you feel like you are tracking every movement from him and the like the use of props within like you have the you have a sword obviously but mm-hmm. they have the they have the the serum they have the the like elixir that's been formed by by karen and whistler And he's got this, like, strap of needles on his thigh. And if he can, like, inject that into Deacon, he can kill him. And so, like, the way it ends up with, like, the marriage of technology and brute force in these movies is where so much of, like, the artistry and I think sort of, like, the, the interesting visuals come from. And the fact that it ends with him just, like, getting poison, like, kicked into his body, like incredibly by Wesley Snipes and then he he basically explodes into a blood bomb mm-hmm. is a perfect way for a vampire to to be vanquished. And then, what does he go to Russia at the very end in the button?
2: Yeah.
1: I, but also... I could just have to- done an entire movie of Russian nightlife vampire slaying. Oh,
0: one hundred percent with Wesley Snipes speaking a fairly decent Russian.
1: Great. Okay. I I will trust this. I'm glad to have this coming in from a primary source. I'm very glad like, to you know what that.
0: it's it's always like you know. First of all, the two the two like um you know supporting characters in that post like almost post credits Russian scene are actual Russians, which is okay. a novelty for most <laughs> American made movies featuring <laughs> Russian speakers. Yeah, I would bet um, so. <laughs> but um, but Wesley Snipes well done sir because his russian is actually not bad probably phonetically (laughs) learned but it's phonetically it's a very difficult language for people who are not native speakers so i'm always very impressed by people who manage to speak like sound like they actually know
1: one more thing wesley snipes can do I know, right? The (laughs) the,
0: the talents of Wesley Snipes know no bounds. But to your point about the costuming, which I think is so interesting, is that it actually—and this will become a recurring thing in all the films, right? Mm -hmm. We'll talk a lot about this, a lot more about this, with Blade Trinity, because that's just choices. Um, (laughs) It's his uniform. This is a superhero uniform. Like everything is so tightly bound because even as a daywalker, his main. Power really aside from all the super strength and all of that is the fact his ability to control the thirst. No vampire can do that.
2: No, nope, he's n- the yeah. only
0: one who can do that. Yep. And the fact that he is like, whenever he is his elements, his uniform is taken apart and taken away from him. That intrinsically becomes a vulnerable moment because, yes, Wesley Snipes is a physically impressive man. He was like mm-hmm. at his physical peak at this time. He's very imposing physically, but that's not—it's not really about the size of him. It's no. about how he handles his body, yep. like the stillness that I mentioned before. So when Blade is stripped, like physically from his vest, from the the yeah. compression turtleneck that he's wearing, from his sunglasses, from his mm-hmm. coat, mm-hmm. all of those things. They're ripping apart kind of his ways of controlling everything that he is, that is it's just so slightly too much for a human being. Mm-hmm. But because he's that in that awkward, potentially dangerous in-between, yeah. it's all about self-control for him. Mm-hmm. And I'd completely forgotten about that meditation scene that we yep. get with Blade, where it's it's the centering of himself. Like that's mm-hmm. entirely his will. The entire first film is about Blaine Blade reigning in those facets of him and controlling them and sublimating them into something that is positive Mm -hmm. and something that is uh, protecting even in in an invisible subterranean kind of way for Mm -hmm. the majority of the human world protecting humans there is it's not flashy it's all entirely Mm purpose-filled
1: and like you said that is something we will get into explicitly with the fashion in three oh
0: yeah (laughs) (laughs) I have a whole section about that I listed out all the fashion choices before we get into Blade Trinity we have to talk about the sequel Blade 2 from Mm -hmm. 2002
2: there's a world beyond the one we know where the powers of darkness fear nothing but one man We represent the ruling body of the Vampire Nation. They're offering you a truce. They want to meet with you. You sure about this? They'll take us in deeper than we've ever been. Now, those he has sworn to kill need his help to fight a new breed of terror. They're no longer top of the food chain. Our forces are ready to fight, but we need a leader. Let me get this right. You want me to hunt them, for you? Ooh, so exciting. Five. Four, three, two, one. Keep your friends close. Keep your enemies closer. Commodore freaks. Commodore freaks now. <laughs> I cannot know who you are with! Blade two.
0: okay I'm gonna take it from the fact that you haven't mentioned it that much that this is not <laughs> no, your not favorite not, blade
1: it is not it's not my favorite blade and the because to me it doesn't to me it doesn't feel like a blade movie mm. like I I if it was something else, if it was a different hero and everything else was the same, I think I would like this movie more. But what Blade 3 does for me that I, like, I, I love all the screen movies. All of them. I love 3. I love 4. And I love all the screen movies because I like hanging out with my screen friends. I like hanging out with my Woodsboro gang. I love the on-screen chemistry. I love, the, I love the way they relate to one another. I love Sidney Prescott more than anything. I just want to go and hang out with those people and their characters and the way they relate to each other. And my God, Courtney Cox, incredible. That is a constant throughout all of these movies. What I see in two is because things get big so much bigger around him, because the mystery of what the creatures are is such a focal, like we have to like, holy shit, there's this new thing. There's so much less... It feels like there's just so much less Blade being Blade. Mm. And I love Ron Perlman. And I love... His banter with Blade is one of my favorite parts of that second movie. Yeah. Because I think it's... Because it's still giving me what I most value about the character. And the way that it brings in the love story for the second one, I feel like it's... Amidst all of the action that is going on, it's asking... Like... Again, I think it's asking to prove something about Blade that we already know is true, which is that he does feel and that connection mm. does matter to him and that he will self-sacrifice. And like but I I just and I I I can't really ever get past because like the the vaporisi- vaporizing of the the vampires is something that's like humorously like CGI'd in even up through 3. Like it looks the the effects of the b- vampires disappearing looks the same kind of in 3 as it does in 1. Mm-hmm. Um they just like we picked an aesthetic we're running with it and in two it was a one of it was it's this case of like that era around the early 2000s when like when George Lucas decided to put a bunch of computer trash in his original Star Wars movies because like oh this is what this was my original artistic intent and we have the technology now so I'm gonna make I'm gonna put this other scene with Jabba walking around with Han Solo in even though it made Jabba look like just a normal six foot tall worm it was like Jabba is deeply unimpressive when you have him just walking to the Millennium Falcon with Han Solo what the fuck's going on and just like minimized the scale and intimidating power of Jabba so much and you watch those those Lucas edits and it's like yeah but we didn't have the technology yet. You think we do, because it's better than it was in the 1970s and 1980s, but we don't actually have the technology to go back in and fuck with the text the way you want to. So you mm-hmm. watch those re-edits, and it's like, this looks like somebody at home put computer-generated aliens into Star Wars that weren't supposed to be there. And when you watch Blade 2, the technology was getting so much better, and the Matrix had happened, the matrixization mm-hmm. of of Blade in the second film. There are fight scenes that look so rubbery. Like, there's that one in front of the backlighting between Blade and one of, like, he'll soon discover that it's one of his allies, but that that initial fight where at one point one of them jumps in the, it might have been Blade, jumps, does, like, a corkscrew spin in the air and, like, comes down Mm -hmm. to kick the adversary. And I watch and I'm just like, oh, this looks like when they went too hard in the Neo and Mr. Smith fights in, like, 2 and 3 and it just looked like he was fighting a bunch of gumbies in a video game. And you blade the, the one of the coolest parts about one of the most effective parts about first blade is how hard that action hits and how good yeah. those fight scenes are. And it takes away from, to me, the natural ability and appeal of Wesley Snipes to digitize him like that because it, it, it makes the fights actually hit softer. And I don't, Blade is, Blade is is hard edge. Like, Blade is not like any of the other Marvel properties that have been released. So when you make it feel as glorious as Guillermo del Toro monster movies are, they're fantastic. They're fantastical. They feel like fantasy, like fantasy other worlds. Mm -hmm. Blade doesn't feel like fantasy. Blade feels like hard sci-fi. Blade feels like a sci-fi ass-kicking. That is not even what Hellboy feels like. Hellboy feels like a magical world. So this is the interesting
0: point. is the fact that Blade 2 is both, needs to be a sequel to Blade, but also needs to be because of the nature of who he is and how he makes films and the Mm -hmm. sheer powerful force of his imagination and his Mm -hmm. visual imagination, a Guillermo del Toro
1: film. It's, it's, exactly. And it, it, when Guillermo del Toro makes a film, it should be a Guillermo del Toro film. I don't want Guillermo del Toro to make a to make a movie and have to plug and play into someone else's vision. I don't want mm-hmm. that at all. So I get it. I get it. And I think
0: actually having rewatched it yesterday, it feels much more cohesive with the Guillermo del Toro expanded universe than yes. it does with the Blade universe. Even though I like it as a film, I like it a lot. Yes. It the point that you were making about the fight sequences, I I have this image of dust lifting off of Blade whenever he gets hit, mm-hmm. because you can you can see that that's a hit. Like he is, there is that hard edge. There are consequences to that fight to that contact. Mm-hmm. Here it's uh, slightly glossier in a fantastical way, and there's even designs that then have been then then we see in subsequent yeah Daltora films. Like there's certain elements that he will gravitate towards. But what I wanted to ask is like how there's something really con- specific that mm-hmm. he brings to the table with the sequel. And it's obviously mm-hmm. the Reapers and the design of the Reapers. Yes. And making the vampire even more monstrous mm-hmm. in this film than they, well, than they happened before. It's a lot more of, you mentioned Nosferatu versus say, Bela Lugosi's Dracula as yeah. the two original cinematic counterpoints of what a vampire looks like. Mm-hmm. This feels to me that Del Toro is bringing a lot more Nosferatu into a Draculian world,
1: which makes total sense for him. And I think, I think a fundamental, a fundamental thing about me and Blade Two is basically I need to get over myself. Not because, not because I should, I should like the movie more than I do. I can feel however I want to feel about it, but I like the, the, it has to like I have to reconcile in my mind that two things can be true at once. I cannot like this as a Blade movie, and I can like it as a Guillermo del Toro movie. And I, as a Guillermo del Toro movie, I I do enjoy this. The rubbery fight scenes I kind of will never forgive. I like that. Like I I I like the Reapers. Like I like the creatures. They're cool. I like that he, you know. Yes, make it an uneasy vampire alliance. That's a perfect direction for the story to go into. That makes total sense. Like you, it just becomes a monster of the week if you just have him constantly killing vampires. Like you know, if you go on every installment, I like that. I like that device. I don't the the love story bit was just a little too soft for me. It was too I, I don't want that softness in a in a blade movie. I'm like, no, fuck that. Like he's he's beyond that. Like he he cares for humans and he has compassion and he is half human, but like keep that trifling shit out of here. Like and again, as it, as a, a person who just like gets annoyed at like unnecessary relationships being stuck into movies. Um, and also frankly, there
0: was no chemistry between them.
1: None. There was none. And I I loved Dr. Karen and him so much. I think I had a grudge that it wasn't Karen. Mm. I was like, "Where the fuck's Karen?" Like, "Where where is?" I was happy to see Whistler again cuz I'm always happy to see Whistler. And the durability of that character, fucking why not? Like, okay. But like I watched the movie and it it feels like putting it, it feels like he borrowed Blade to do another thing that wasn't Blade and I I don't feel like that is as honoring of the Blade vibe that was so established in one that it's like, no, 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 what I like about this is like the world that Blade, the world of Blade. You've given me the movie now, the world of GDT, and you've put Blade in it. That's cool. Um, but what about Blade's world? That's also cool. And I would like to go back to that. Like, I want to go back to Pearl. I want to go back to Udo Kier. Like I feel like there, there are two sort of when you have certain character, when you have certain actors in movies, they tell you things about those movies. Ron Perlman and Guillermo del Toro, a great union. Oh. When you put Ron Perlman in a in a in a genre movie, he mm-hmm. tells you a little bit about the tone of that movie. Like when you have Ron, Ron Perlman's in Alien Resurrection, right? Like he's he's in the.
0: Don't remember, but I know that because we literally covered it in the previous episode of this podcast, and I was also diving back into my Guillermo del Toro book with all his drawings and sketches and diaries and stuff. Mm -hmm. There's a beautiful little letter from Ron Perlman crediting... Guillermo del Toro as being well first of all his work with him on Chronos which is a, a low budget oh, Mexican yeah. vampire film that never uses the word vampire and yep. made by like a then 29 year old Guillermo which is just obscene
1: It's obscene
0: uh, obscene Yeah but, fuck you man <laughs> just like no no I want to be adopted by you <laughs> like yeah, that's yeah. what I would like to do <laughs> but a uh, Point being that Ron Pullman said that that was the first time he'd ever... He was kind of in a career slum. That was the first time he'd worked with Del Toro and mm-hmm. he consistently sought out and worked with first time and more indie directors because of the sheer fun of that experience and how Mm -hmm. joyful and playful it was and i love their collaboration it goes hand in hand Del Mm Toro always putting him in his movies whatever the role is and knowing exactly what notes to strike because perlman i think similarly to snipes without that like leading man powerful star charisma he is a a perfection of a character actor
1: ron perlman is ron perlman is exactly what he is supposed to be in everything he has ever done yes ron perlman is a fucking treasure and it's because he has because he has you know i think people would say like maybe an unconventional look he truly like his his energy is so strong on screen and his presence Mm. is so specific that when like like something like the city of last children where he be, like he's so beautiful like i he's so compelling he's so ron perlman is so watchable mm-hmm. and he is so he makes such wonderful choices on screen and he uses his very specific dominating physicality to such perfect effect whether he is meant to be a gentle figure like in City of Last children, or like he is meant to be like a gentle, violent creature, like he is in Hellboy, or he's meant to be just a shit-talking asshole, like he is in Blade Two. The and best Protos thing, the fun. best thing about Blade, the best thing about Blade Two is is Ron Perlman. Like, and I think that's, and it's because it's a Guillermo del Toro movie. And he, and and what I was getting to in that was like, mm-hmm. when you when you look for certain actors and they tell you what kind of movie you're about to watch, you know Udo Kier's there, you know that you're in for some like probably fucked up shit. Like you see. Ron Perlman there, and you know that like this is going to be, and you know it's like a, a genre movie. It's like this is going to be eccentric, this is going to be surreal, and like it, he was in he was an Alien Resurrection, which is a, a Jean-Pierre Jeunet movie, who also did City of last Children. Mm-hmm. So like his connections with Guillermo del Toro and Jeunet are. I love that part of Ron Perlman's work, and I think that those are. Filmmakers that have made the best use of that incredible, gorgeous, specific presence that is Ron Perlman, and I watch something like this, and I, it feels Blade is the center. It's called Blade Two. Mm-hmm. He shouldn't feel like he's a visitor in another kind of story, and that's what he feels like in this. And it so it's not as fruitful for me as a Blade movie, even mm-hmm. if. I, like, I love the club fight scene. I love when it's them versus the Reapers. The, like, underground in the tunnels being pursued by all the Reapers. That's cool as shit. Like, there's a lot of stuff that I like in Isolation about Blade 2 that I just wish wasn't a Blade movie because mm-hmm. I'm not getting to see... Like, you want the character to evolve, I guess? I kind of don't. Like, I don't actually need Blade to grow as a person. I don't actually need him to like learn something else about himself he does that enough but the problem in blade's world is that he doesn't get what's going on it's that nobody else around him does it's <laughs> like like he blade is more in on the joke than anybody else around him from the vampire side or the human side this is about everybody else seem to get on blade's level in each blade movie So, like, I actually don't need him to have, like, a more different, I don't need him to learn, like, a new kind of skill or, like, level of human empathy. I just kind of need to see him be better than everybody.
0: (laughs) I think there's something that I really, I I, previously, to rewatching them yesterday, I would confidently always say that Blade 2 was my favorite Blade film.
1: Okay. And that is is absolutely a school of fandom. That is absolutely a school of fandom is the Blade 2 is my ride or die.
0: I will now recant that opinion and say that actually it's one of my favorite Gabriel del Toro movies.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I hear that.
0: But not but not my number one out of the Blade franchise. Sure. One of the things that really struck me is that, and to echo all the points that you've been making, is that this feels like a, a vampire family drama.
1: Yes, yes. A vampire so. dynasty
0: mm-hmm. as opposed to a Blade film. So it feels mm-hmm. like Blade is infringing on his own sequel in this yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. And I'm gonna use that as a segue to ask you, you know what do you make of really you know we've talked about blade and and what he's allowed to do and how he's not perhaps being the most blade he can be in this film, but mm-hmm. what do you make of the the real story of Blade too, which is actually about this conspiracy and this this you know Shakespearean dynamic between the old pure blood vampire who wants a new master vampire race and his two children.
2: Mm-hmm. No, and and
1: that and that I think that's why I've had a persistent. I think that's why there's a sort of persistent frustration for me with Blade Two because I love that shit. Like I want, I want. Give me, give me a whole segment of. We're not going to get GDT's Hellboy Three, but if we wanted to continue on with Guillermo's, like vampire lore universe that would be fucking sweet that would be that would be high end top of line shit underworld that would be a list underworld is what that would be and like i was like and i think it goes back to what i was saying with like the way blade one is like a milkshake of kinds of cool in where like stylistically and sort of in that icy techno um techno baroque way of of the matrix and then also the expansive artistic bisexual lighting way that John Wick does the same thing with its culture of assassins and the high table and the markers and the ver- the specific vernacular of it what we get in Parabellum where we get in, where we when he goes to the fucking ballet school in, in- when he goes to the ballet in Parabellum and you're like holy shit, now we're at Russian Ballet, we're in this extremely, like, artistically adorned backroom with Angelica fucking Houston is here? Mm -hmm. Like, it is so gorgeous. I could live in that ballet theater for an entire John Wick movie and be like, can we just have the spin-off web series that's just the politics of this weird, abusive ballet school? (laughs) Don't get me
0: started on... Dark, the dark underbelly of Soviet this, and Russian ballet schools. That's, is, that's all the shit that I want to see at I any want, point of
1: the day. This is the same thing. I feel the same way. There, I think there are few richer palettes to explore than that. I I, I want so much I, fuck you Red Sparrow for oh, all, God. all the things you did. Why was this not why was that movie not just a psychosexual drama about like the ballet in Russia. Like, why wasn't that the epicenter of everything? And that is what is so, that's what's really enticing about Blade 2. I want more of that. That is definitely an extension. That is a, a, a GDT style built off extension of what that mm-hmm. does in one, where you get that immediate sense of there's this completely realized world that has been around longer, as long as longer than humans, that is just built under, like you, I, I imagine the idea of like, like of the underpass in, in us, Mm -hmm. the idea that right below everything we do, there is a mirror community where the darker version of everything is happening. And the idea, the the possibility of getting to explore more of that. Mm -hmm. It's both, it's un, it's like, it's unfair to the blade franchise. Cause it's like, it doesn't serve as it doesn't serve me as a blade movie watching this but I want more of what it is doing. But the third movie had to make a choice of what it was going to do. And I love Trinity and the direction it decided to go in where it like became a buddy comedy version of, it feels like a direct sequel almost to the first one where they infuse little bits of like what we learned into like those hybrid, the animal vampire hybrids that we see in three, like those are very much the physical architecture of the reapers like and the <laughs> anna is putting a finger to Oh ah, yes vampire pomeranians um <laughs> we see like blade three couldn't be a direct sequel either had to be a direct sequel to two or kind of a direct sequel to one it kind of couldn't do both and because number because the second one is like this in between world of is it for Blade fans? Is it for Del Toro fans? Can mm-hmm. that or can there be a ton of overlap there in what both of those fandoms want? I wanted to see more of what Blade Two implied, but I didn't want any more of those Blade movies. But I wanted mm. more of Del Toro's rich Byzantine fucking vampire politics movies. I would love a vampire family drama. That's why I'm so glad that there is that underworld offshoot with Mitra, where we like go back in time for it and get to see more about mm-hmm. how the world can like throw a prequel in there fuck yeah throw a prequel in there give me how we got to this point mm-hmm. as realized in the way that really only del toro is able to do from both sources of sense of imagination and the amount of funding that he would get from any studio to have him make that movie like they'll, they'll trust del toro or something like that so i like it so much and i just wish it wasn't in my blade movie because mm. I I give me give me a whole other original vampire story where you do that because I will follow you to the end of time telling me all about these crazy tales of how we arrived at modern vampire like interfaction warfare, family warfare.
0: I want to see that so bad, I would pay a whole for a whole nother streaming subscription service alongside <laughs> yeah. all of the ones that I have already to see that. That is
1: that is a true testament to commitment in this is being like, give mm-hmm. me another streaming service. I'm begging you.
0: Just like the vampire channel. That's just <laughs> yeah. this one series.
1: Vampires would go so much higher on my list of appointment viewing if we could do that. If we could like John Wick Bladefy. Vampire <laughs> stories and have someone on the level of Del Toro making these gorgeously realized movies. Oh my God, yeah, yeah. But I'm first, thinking.
0: let the let the man make in the mountains of madness first because yes. that's been going yes. on for ages, and ages. I, I want to see it as well. Yeah, but it's
1: just about time.
0: I mean, at the point where you brought up the the vampire Pomeranian, I knew we needed to move on to Blade <laughs> Trinity. So, is that before we do that? I've been waiting for an hour and fifteen minutes to do that. <laughs> Is there anything about Blade Two that you wanted to touch upon?
1: I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I'm so glad they brought back Whistler. I'm so <laughs> glad that they brought back Whistler. That we got to see, I, the, the, the and I think it's meant to be. But like my favorite relationship across uh, is the tenderness between Blade and Whistler, and and watching him have. Um, a father. Like, that is very sweet. And again, that um, just unre- unreplaceable, unreplicable Chris Christopherson kind of growl against the, like, handsome, young, vibrant, youthful Wesley Snipes. It's just so good. And I I, I love... I love... like it, 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 For, like, the moments that it does work, I love watching the goofiness of Blade interact with this world where he's just like, what in the great fuck is going on here? Like... Because Wesley Snipes, because Wesley Snipes can make anything work in that way. But yeah, I just, I, I feel like Blade 2 is a movie that I feel like I have to revisit throughout my life. I have to just keep watching it every now and again to, like, train myself to watch it for what it is instead mm-hmm. of what my brain keeps telling me it's supposed to be. And it's just, it's like a slow process of of, of like, developing an appreciation for a food you didn't like before where it's like, well, it's never going to be my favorite food, but I definitely know I at least like it on toast.
2: <laughs>
1: like, I'm not going to eat it like, like uni. I hate uni on its own. An uni butter? <laughs> oh, that's a nice treat. <laughs> How can I find my way to Blade becoming like an uni butter situation where I want to like embrace it for what it is instead of just being like, yeah, but where's Blade?
0: unibutter is not the segue that i was waiting for but it's the one that i will take before we fully move on to play trinity i just wanted to very quickly mention a the the only thing that i did not remember about this film was the disrespect that it paid to donnie yen by making him mute
1: really good point really really good point that's some bullshit that is some bullshit big bullshit
0: fucking scud gets all of those one-liners and absolutely no character and serves no purpose could have been we didn't need we didn't need, need a new early noughties norman readers for that role who really did not
1: no we we did you not got donnie yen we got donnie yen and it's like i, I was talking about expendables 2 recently and jet lee is is is, is in a, it's he's not in like peak physical form right now like he there mm-hmm. are you know issues as he's gotten older but like in expendables 2 jet lee is in it So briefly that it's almost like why did you why is he here to be underserved and then he exits the movie. It's very beginning. He's only in one the intro opening fight scene and then he's gone. What is Donnie Yen doing here if this isn't about Donnie Yen? He's a he's a fucking legend. So like, come on. Honestly, this had been a Donnie Yen movie and you'd made a Donnie Yen Del Toro vampire movie. Listen. Holy shit, man. That, I, ends of the earth, go to the ends of the earth for that. Like, mm-hmm. that would have worked for me 100%. I needed yeah. a le-
0: a little less Chupa and a little more Donnie Yen. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> Completely agree. Completely agree. Yes.
0: So, on that note, let's finally talk mm-hmm. about Blade Trinity from 2004.
2: I have to ask you a couple of questions. What can you tell me about vampires? They exist. Sh- Blade. First, he faced their gods, then, he battled their demons. But all that was only the beginning. back. Vampire final solution. You can't win this war alone. Who the hell are you people? My father meant for us to help you. Whistler's daughter. What the hell makes you think you know about hunting vampires? Just for starters, I used to be one. And stopping them now me
0: i can't believe this film was from 2004
1: <laughs> does it feel too late or too early it feels too early
0: because it it's not that long of a distance between blade mm-hmm. 2 and blade trinity and yeah. yet somehow in the story and in especially wesley Snipes' portrayal of blade yeah. here it feels like it's been at least a decade just in it in does. the world. hmm So really um as an opener question for this, what does this film add to the franchise of Blade and to
1: his character? I would say so much. <laughs> I I don't get I think in the way that in the way that people would be like that people could very rightfully be like, I don't get why you I don't get why you're not on board with Blade 2, like what's your problem? I mirror that to them i'm like i don't get what you don't like about blade three what's your problem like if you liked blade one it's it's not as good as blade one i'm not saying that if you like why don't why do you hate three like what is what is so far removed from one that three is that you're like oh no fuck that we don't we don't talk about that what 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 it's more blade one than blade two is i am fully admittedly full disclosure I'm so in the bag for the Ryan Reynolds mid two thousands funny guy in comedy insert thing. I am. Mm-hmm. I we loved that in my house growing up. Like that, my one of our favorite house movies. And when I say that, I'm kind of always referring to my mom. My dad was like doing his own thing. My we fucking love the movie Just Friends in our house. Just Friends is a Christmas classic.
0: Jordan, and, I, I had Van Wilder on DVD and I rewatched <laughs> watched that shit unironically. I thought Ryan Reynolds was a comedic genius.
1: A comedic genius! He's so good at, in the way that a, a presence like a in the way that a presence like him who's deployed to be sort of what they not necessarily themselves, because I don't know the guy, but themselves as far as what the persona crafted mm-hmm. and presented to us is. He executes on that every time. Ryan Reynolds has never let anyone down showing up and doing the Ryan Reynolds. You watch Hobbs and Shaw. He exists in that movie for like eight minutes to be Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. It's funny as shit. I'm all in for it. God, I love that movie. But like, I I just, he's such a, it it's takes Blade and it becomes like self-aware Blade Which doesn't, like, I didn't need that to have happened, but the fact that they went with the choice, he's such an appropriate foil. He's the perfect foil for Wesley's Blade, if you're gonna go in that direction, to at once poke fun at the seriousness of Blade, while also being 100% of the time the butt of the joke. Blade is never the butt of the joke in Blade Trinity, and that's why it works, because to have one more person that Blade can look askance at the entire time, every time he shits on Ryan Reynolds in this movie, it's funny. Every time. Like, any, like the, the point where they, they're on the top of a building and they're shaking down a guy to get him to, tell, to like give up information and they just drop his head down on the ground oh that's what it's for. blade three is when the guy's cell phone rings and wesley looks over and goes oh it's you and he like <laughs> answers his phone for him and like they're walking away and ryan is doing his like nervous talking banter thing mm-hmm. and then he just looks at blade and he just goes i have a lot of sugar today and blade just <laughs> looks at him like he is the stupid motherfucker that he is and then it cuts to jessica biel's reaction shot and she looks at hannibal king his name is hannibal king also for looking at him like the stupid motherfucker that he is that's gold I'm in. I'm all in. It's funny as hell. I love odd couple buddy comedy blade. And this movie is doing the most. We exchanged a couple messages last, last night when like in and around both of us watching this, um, watching the movie, because I, I watched Blade 3 last night too. This is the gayest Blade. <laughs> <laughs> this is the gayest blade movie. Because the thing is. Any movie where you are showcasing 2000s Ryan Reynolds' body the way that this movie is, gay. Ryan Reynolds' Amityville Horror, canonically queer horror cinema. The way he wears those jammy pants that are impossibly hanging onto his body despite riding so low, gay. The way in this, like, I, at one point on Twitter, I posted it, it was last year sometime, I was like I just want the I was like I just want the oral history of how Ryan Reynolds pants stayed up despite him doing everything he does in the third act of Amityville Horror and those 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 being as low to a threshold of exposing him in many ways as they possibly could. He responded to it in the most Ryan Reynolds fashion and he said, "I'll never tell." And then in parentheses he said it was Staples. So like <laughs> You could hear his Ryan Reynolds sarcasm voice coming through. It was ideal. But like this movie, when you have Hannibal King in restraints, shirtless, and you have that definitive 2000s men's health body cover of like cover body of Ryan Reynolds. I have a friend who's my best friend's sister is a is a, a personal trainer and the two most popular people she would get when she opened her business. When clients would come in and saying who they like, who who do you want? What do you want to look like? Mm-hmm. Jessica Biel, Ryan Reynolds. Those were the two most common examples she got. Like you know, I just want to tone up. Jessica Biel, Ryan Reynolds. Those were like the bodies of record in the two thousands mm-hmm. for like aspirational athleticism, lean build kind of thing. And you have Ryan Reynolds in restraints on his knees in this movie, shirtless and glistening with that torso, gay. You have that moment where he tells Blade that he used to be a vampire, and how does he tell him? He slightly lifts his shirt, pushes down, pushes down the hem of his jeans to the lowest threshold one could to reveal his tattoo that was put on him by Parker Posey's Danica Talos. That's not where anybody else's tattoo... They show us Familiar in vampire tattoos, these whole movies, they show them on your neck, they pull something up on an arm. She tattooed that shit below his belly button, like, onto his groin. We see upper pubic hair when he does that. That is, that is so fucking gay. Come on.
0: That is a a male version of a tramp, Sam. Yeah, it is. The fact that right, Hannibal King's vamp stamp is on his <laughs> yeah. like upper pubic area, yeah. it's just genuinely I think it would not be outside of the realms of his character to have requested it to be there no, because he just true. wants to show off the lower abs.
1: And that's like he wants to do. He's worked very hard and he should. And, but even in spite of all of that thirst trapping that is laid out before us, the queerest thing about this movie is Parker Posey. The performance that Parker Posey is giving in this movie is high-ass camp. Like, Danica Talos is an incredible character. When she meets Blade, when she walks into the fucking frame, and she meets Blade, and just watching her drip over him with her, like, white foundation and the thick black eye that that she's wearing the entire time with that crazy slicked back and yet volumized hair she wears like a tight dress to go antagonize blade in a police station like this is by all means they're going to like capture him and probably take him back to their vampire lair it's like a hostage abduction and she wears evening wear She's constantly <laughs> wearing heels. She leans into him and she's like, Hey, Blade. And the way she says his name, the way she hits those L's, it's like she hates every word she's saying, but she's not going to hold back on a single bit of it. She's like, Hey, Blade. Like, I'm a big fan of your work. And then, like, <laughs> eye rolls. Then, like, eye rolls at him. It's like, this is incredible. If we, like, you, order, if you make Parker Posey the organizing principle. Around which Blade 3 is built, it actually makes perfect sense and is an incredible, incredible action, comedy, weird queer horror hybrid. Blade Trinity is queer horror is what I'm saying.
0: I couldn't agree more. And I think the biggest argument and to like confirm your your <laughs> your statement is actually Dracula slash Drake. Oh my god!
1: Speaking of presence on screen.
0: And I will give you two reasons. A the fact that his name is Drake for the <laughs> majority of this film. Not Drac, yeah. not the yeah. Count, not Dracula.
1: Not, Drake. Not, not Dagon. Yeah, it's Drake.
0: And also the leather low-rise pants.
1: Red leather low-rise pants with like a pirate shirt on that has had the chest cut out of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this man is a bear. This man is a hot commodity mm-hmm. in the gay club scene mm-hmm. of whatever fucking city we existed with this movie. This is incredible stuff
0: and I will add another layer of like fashion related choices that this movie makes. yes, is the fact that the the blood the like the bright blood red vest that yes. Blade wears. By the yep. way, the fur the first item of colored clothing that Blade yep. wears.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: he's been wearing black for two films.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> perfectly color coordinates with the dark brown, almost yep. burgundy leather
1: uh-huh.
0: <laughs> of Drake's low rise leather pants.
1: They are they are the lowest Match rise. made in heaven. It, they are the lowest rise leather pants. And he he Dominic Purcell has such broad shoulders. He's like mm-hmm. a real barrel chest on him. But you what you see in those pants is that he actually seems to have rather slender hips. Like he <laughs> like the way those pants I was like, oh, he's slender <laughs> hips, but is he just like built big on top? And he has that just like incredible head jaw He's so he's so handsome and he just looks mm-hmm. like such a such a needy man. You have him showing down With blade and it's like this is this is two vampires trying to top each other is what blade trinity is in its fight scenes. like there's even there's the incredible because he's been awakened by Mm -hmm. by the lesser vampires by Mm -hmm. danica and her brother by the
0: poser vampires
1: yeah by the by the new money poser vampires which bless this okay bless this movie for opening with a bunch of vampires going to egypt Getting out of a plane in like sunproof suits, and one of them looks up and flips off the sun. <laughs> <laughs> this movie opens with one of those vampires flipping off the sun before they go free Dracula. And I love that. I, I truly love that he doesn't want to be there. Dracula doesn't want to be there. As as Danica makes clear, Parker Posey's character, we did not capture him. He allowed us to take him. He's like, all right, bitch, make your case. What the shit am I doing here? (laughs) He sees all of them as fucking frivolous. He's like, you're, as he says, you we become a shadow of our former selves. You embarrass me. The Mm -hmm. only one in the movie, the only one for centuries, because he went into hiding because he was like, You guys are fucking pathetic. I can't even be around you vampires anymore. He like went into self-imposed exile and buried himself. And then he meets Blade and he's like, ah, finally a worthy adversary. And Mm -hmm. he's like, you know, he talks about how he's immortal and Blade's like, i've heard you know i've heard dozens thousands of you say that time and time again you're not immortal you all say that but then you end up at the you end up at the tip of my blade and he's and, and he says, he acquiesces that one he's like perhaps perhaps i will like but we will we will find out in combat where men truly reveal what they are and the idea that this counterpart to drake is blade and that he is like the one man worthy of him And that they have this like almost romantic final showdown between the two of them where Drake is finally engaged in combat with somebody who Mm -hmm. can match him. Like he's prepared to die a good death and he respects Blade. He appreciates Blade. And it's like, I can't, I'm not tabling the homoerotic tension here. Not least of all with that open chested shirt and those leather pants on screen. And I think we can make a very strong case too, and many lesbians I know would agree, that canonically gay is also Jessica Biel in her tactical fashions. <sighs> the tactical fashions on Jessica Biel in this movie, I hope, is the root of at least dozens of millennial lesbians out there. Because as we and we discussed this too in DMs, mm-hmm. Blade 3 is so aware of the people that it has in its movie. It's got bare-chested Dominic Purcell. It's got Ryan Reynolds' torso all over. There is the incredible moment where I love the reveal of, of Jessica Biel's character, Abby in this where she's there, they're springing blade because he's been captured by the cops because he killed a familiar that he thought was a vampire, but no jokes on him. So they get him, they apprehend him. And then the night stalkers, even with their stupid name, the night stalkers show up to spring blade and it's Hannibal King and it's Abigail. And when they're, they're going through the halls to get out of this police station, you hear Hannibal yell, like Whistler let's go and you're like oh shit Whistler Abby's a Whistler like I love the familial connection there. and the way you see Blade register it like what the fuck because mm-hmm. at this point Whistler is finally dead dead until I refuse to I refuse to accept that Mahershala Ali's Blade will not bring back Chris Christopherson yet again because I was about to
0: say die? I'm pretty sure he will
1: he, he why, why how could you not mm-hmm. and when you meet Whistler when you meet Abby Whistler this movie has the wherewithal To not only... Like, we see Jessica Biel plenty in tank tops in this movie. We see that. This movie is so clever in its awareness of Jessica Biel at this moment in time. We see her not only in without sleeves. She is in a top that has sleeves that unzip. There is a grand costume unveiling of Jessica Biel's unparalleled fucking guns... As she unzips her leather sleeves to reveal them. Because there's just too much muscle in there to be contained by leather. So she can, like, whip around and start killing bitches with her archery skills. What a fucking moment. The whole intro. The whole intro of her character. Because we we I think the first time we see her is when she's on the subway platform. Mm-hmm. And she, like, she, the Night Sockers go out and they tempt vampires. They're out there baiting them. So she, like, is dressed as a, as a single mom. She's got a crying, like, like doll baby on her chest. She's trying to draw attention to herself. She gets sieged by a handful of vampires. And she, the way she whips off her, like, bedraggled mom jacket and has those very 2000s, like, chunky curls, those mm-hmm. chunky, wavy curls styled in, her whole, like... Arms bowed out to the side, like sheriffs in town walk that she does (laughs) (laughs) when she is approaching the vampires in that scene. It's like, ma'am, you've just killed all the lesbians. You've just killed them straight away. Like it is, it is a remarkably so much of this movie up and down is so wonderfully homosexual, and for that reason, I have, I am, I am obsessed. I've, I've said, I've said this many times on social media. It's like, I want, like, God, am I going to watch something new tonight or am I going to watch Blade again? Like, well, <laughs> is it one of those Blade nights? And that means I'm either going to watch Blade or Blade Trinity. But kind of every movie I could potentially watch is in competition with would I rather be watching Blade right now? So, like, <laughs> and Blade Trinity is absolutely that, like, alternate back and forth. I can just put this movie on anytime and enjoy myself so much.
0: I think the reveal of Jessica Beale's arms. <sighs> is not only I, I would say it's the second gayest bit about Blade Trinity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we will come to the first bit um, to the first element but it's also weirdly like you mentioned earlier it's utilizing both the thing about Ryan Reynolds that we want to see we want to see yeah. his torso. That's to what see. we want to see yep. and also frankly Jessica Biel her body is being utilized to maximum effect in this film but not sexualizing her no she's not being objectified she's not being paraded for us to ogle at her it's like no this girl this girl is an archer her arms are strong as Fuck.
1: She is it that and that is one of she in the ways
0: that-leather cannot contain that. In the same I way mean, as like when Blade like takes off the turtleneck and is yep. just in his vest, it's like, yeah, that's when shit gets real. When yes, she unzips the leather jacket, yeah. that's when the
1: violence is about to commence, people. Yes, that's when we know it's real. And I I one of much like Scream is my favorite um horror franchise. I, I love those movies for so many reasons. But one of the things that has always meant the most to me about them is that it's a completely asexual bunch of movies. Like, so often in, in horror, in anything, but it's trafficked in horror so much, violence and sexual like release mm-hmm. are conflated. And, you know, you can, you can be enjoying a horror movie, but still, you know, you feel unsafe in a fun way because you're like, ooh, people are in danger, but it's easy to feel unsafe in a bad way where you mm-hmm. start feeling like you can't actually trust the person you don't feel like you're in good hands with the person who's making the film because maybe their intentions or their gaze or what they want to get out of like the women or the more vulnerable characters on screen are actually kind of gross and that they're just um, utilizing this opportunity in this kind of film to kind of like do a fantasy thing or fulfill something that it, it's not necessary to the story but they just sort of want to see, they want to exploit um, women or marginalized queer folks, mm-hmm. brown people, in, black or brown people in peril because that's like, yeah, that, that's good horror scream there's never a connection between like knife penetration and death and sexual violence and scream it is completely off the table and that makes me feel really comfortable that makes me feel really happy and as again someone of the spectrum i like it when sex just like doesn't have to be part of the equation because we relate over sex and who's having it all the time it's, it's relieving sometimes it's refreshing to see it not be a part of it and i think that's the thing i like about action cinema so much as it does tend to be fairly sexless in that way like for someone who like you know is as full of his like big dick joke gusto as The Rock often is in his movies. Like The Rock and Will Smith are kind of like famously not sexual entities on screen yes. in these big action films they front, and even often Tom Cruise. Like rarely is Tom Cruise a sexualized person on screen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what what you have in these movies, this is not as sexual as vampires are in their like. It, it's kind of what separates them from the hunters in these movies is that they're these like sexual beings and deviant, not in the sense of like queerness is perversion but like they'll drink your blood while killing you and like that's sexual for them like you see there is sex present in the universe and that is so inextricable from you know the presence of vampire as we understand it it's a fun part about the presence of vampires and, and that as a monster the horniest of all monsters that is cool i do like how in the human it's just sort of a fraternity it's just a sort of fraternity of people bound by this war and i love I love that there is no sexual tension between Abby and Hannibal King. I love that they're like brother and sister. Like even when Hannibal has been stabbed through the chest by, by Drake with a, a silver stake and he's like convalescing back in their like boat HQ that they have, he's like in this, you know, mash unit kind of operating room and he's covered by like knit blankets and quilts. And Abby walks in Blade walks in Hannibal says something dumb because he always does and Blade just walks away wordlessly and he looks at Abigail and he just goes he hates me doesn't he and she's like yeah he hates you. and there's not a moment where like he's saying they're bare chested nothing she hasn't seen before but there isn't a like ooh there's gonna be a steamy glance between the two and after Hannibal gets captured and she goes to spring him there isn't like they don't rush a kiss in it's not like oh I finally mm-hmm. know how I feel about you no they're just fucking ass kickers together that is what yeah. they do and there's just It's nice to see. It's fun to see. It doesn't encumber the story with like a romance that doesn't need to be there. And also that just so often goes wrong for the woman because Mm -hmm. it is so told for the advantage of the male character and the male audience. Have steaminess, have chemistry, have sexual energy, have that. I don't want to see it actually if it's not done really well. Mm -hmm. I don't want to see it just inserted for fun. Like I want to see it if it's fucking good, if it's fucking steamy and powerful and it actually adds something to these characters. But in a Blade movie... In 2004, that's not where I want to see us take a chance on how you're going to make Jessica Beale the object of somebody's affection. Abso-fucking-lutely not. We know too much and are, and are revisiting too much about what we know about 2000s era media culture for that to have been a good idea. And even when there is the scene where she comes back covered in blood, Abigail comes back to HQ covered in blood, and there's that shower scene where she's washing the blood off of mm-hmm. her. I honestly find it to be beautiful. Like, did we need her nude in the shower? No, that wasn't a scene that had to be there. I think it is well done. And Jessica Biel, I hope she feels like when she looks back at that experience, it was comfortable and that she was in control and that she was in conversation with David S. Boyer, the the director of it. I hope she feels positively about that scene because when I watch it, I really like it. The angles of it and the lighting of it are beautiful. Jessica Biel is beautiful. Her body is beautiful. And as it is presented to us as this vessel of power and strength in the film, even in that scene, we never see like private parts of her body exposed. They, you know, do a good job with that. And that's obviously intentional. It is I, I think a moment to pause and appreciate the physical power of, of an amazing body like Jessica Biel's in that moment, that's not gross. That's not exploitative. Mm-hmm. And we should we should celebrate people's bodies, not only bodies that are like examples of fucking human perfection like Jessica Beale, all bodies. But the fact of a woman who is so strong, capable, battle-tested, a moment to recognize the beauty and 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 intention of her form, that's good to me. And I also like that it's hot. Like, it can be all of those things. And I thought that that was really well done in this movie.
2: In a movie that doesn't
1: really incorporate nudity ever otherwise. Yeah.
0: And I feel really, really bad for bringing this up now after that beautiful... Eloquent (laughs) exploration of the use of bodies in Blade Trinity, but Mm -hmm. there's no way we cannot not talk about the Vampire Pomeranian.
1: Oh no, 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 no. The the, and that is, and I think that is because it's crucial that we talk about the Vampire Pomeranian for many reasons. One of them being, I have heard that kind of expressed the presence of the Vampire Pomeranian as sort of a dig at this movie as a microcosm example for why people are like. I mean, the fucking vampire Pomeranian is like something, a reason for it to be tossed off. But that is, that reveal, mo- I mean, the fact that throughout this movie, Triple H is frequently cuddling a tiny fucking Pomeranian. Like, let's, re- let's review here. Triple H is in this movie. Hunter Hurst Helmsley is a supporting character vampire in this movie. John Michael Higgins plays a familiar in this movie eric bogosian plays oh. a talking head newsman in this movie as you as you dm'd me last night oh my god i forgot Patton oswalt and natasha leone are in this movie natasha leone plays a blind scientist named strawberry fields come on she wears red glasses Patton Oswalt plays very much something that Patton Oswalt will play. He plays like the nerdy weapons specialist. Like,
0: but to this... be honest, even even uh, I I will preface this only because I have literally a couple of weeks ago finished um, Patton Oswalt's Silver Screen Fiend, oh, okay. and I I could see his thought process on screen, <laughs> and it was beautiful and delightful, and I could see all the effort and the overthinking that went into him thinking about the one moment where he handed blade a weapon
1: <laughs> <laughs> that i i mean it felt like there there's a there's a collegial energy that is very impressively immediately established where they think the group of night stalkers when you when you're with him at hq And right, when he sees blade and he's like about to give like his weapons presentation and he like he's there and he's in front of him he's just like oh, Jesus, uh, like, uh, like the, he's been confronted with his hero, basically. Like, mm-hmm. this, you really feel it. And then when he's, you know, giving his presentation, like, is it kind of tacked on? But when he's like, gentlemen and hottie, it was like, honestly, yes. Like, these are a bunch of friends. They're hanging out. Patches is not disrespecting Jessica Biel. He's overwhelmed. He's a dork. She's really hot. Blade's here. It's a whole lot. And there's there's a great, it's such a tiny little moment in this movie, but just... You know we don't get much of them because most of the Night Nightstalkers get wiped out by, by Drake and his cronies, by Drake and his lesser vampires. And um, there's they're about ready to go hunting, and Abby like looks at, um, patches, and he well he looks at her and he just goes, he's like, you want a party favor? And she just looks at him and goes, lucky sevens, and he just goes, done. It's like I feel like Patton what was having so much goddamn fun in like the five minutes that he's in this movie. <laughs> I I just, like, the whole weapon reveal, like, explaining the arc, like, the bow that has the arc of UV light through it. I was like, yeah, this shit is cool. Like, when I think of, like, continuing on the Blade journey, yeah, show me cool technological stuff like this. Like, uh, give me five more of these movies where we just have a scene like this every time, where I learn new mythology, where I see new weapons, where I hear more about inter-vampire family political conflict. Like, give me all of these moments where we escalate the size of the world and its intricacies. I love that shit. And so by the time we get to vampire Pomeranian, Hannibal King has been trapped. He's been captured by the vampires. He's been bound up. He's shirtless, of course. He doesn't need to be, but they've taken his shirt off of him and he's a prisoner. And he's laying on the ground. And he's like, coming to consciousness. And there's a dog that's licking his face. And he just looks at this little adorable, little red-haired Pomeranian at him. And then its mouth opens up like the Reapers. It does connect it to Blade 2, And you get that whole open face mouth jaw thing. And he just ah! he recoils in horror. And he looks at me and he's like, you made a goddamn vampire Pomeranian? Like, he is as incredulous as we are with every word coming out of his mouth. And then Triple H scoops him up. As he has been loving on this dog the entire movie, and just like makes a kissy face at him, and the dog like opens its alien reaper mouth jaw at him, and they're having like a cute moment between a man and his dog. And that it's it's a perfect, I think it is a perfect indication of this movie's embrace of absurdity. I think it is, I think the way people mock this moment suggests that there was not a self-awareness in how it was put together. I think this movie is very aware of what it's doing, and I really, really appreciate that about it. <laughs> and we have we have to acknowledge. I do have to just shout out this moment where it, there is interaction between between um, Jarko Grimwood, by the way, Triple H's character Jarko Grimwood.
0: The names in this film, by the way, from from Jarko to uh, Bentley Tittle, which yes. is Eric Bogosian's <laughs> character even even like <laughs> even danica tallow
1: you cannot have a newsman named eric eric what is it bentley tittle bentley tittle the, the people in charge being like yeah we're having a laugh we're having a laugh here we know exactly what we're fucking doing bentley tittle
0: bentley tittle <laughs> that's that's when you know it's a comedy and that happens within like the first i don't know 15 minutes of the film maybe? oh yeah
1: like we're at the, this is we've had our cold open with blade killing the mm-hmm. familiar which uh, one of the great one of the great running gags throughout the Blade franchise that they do so well is how much Blade hates familiars. And yeah. And how he gets to say, sic- I
2: hate familiars.
1: And how familiars are always such little whiny pieces of shit. And Dr. Vance is a piece of shit. He's a familiar. The guy who traps him in a person is a familiar. And it just, we see that all the way through to the end of the series. That he hates familiars and just disrespects them so much. And that, there's constant comedy from that. Oh my god, James mm. Remar is in this movie. Yeah. James remar even makes an appearance in this movie like i'm sorry all all hits no skips i don't know how you tell me that blade trinity is not a fun time at the very least how it's not a fun time there's a great there's that great moment in the police station where like the 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 feds are coming to take Blade, which means the vampires and the local cops are pissed about it and james remar is getting really mad these other law enforcement officers for getting it on his jurisdiction. And it's like he forgets the line or something, because he's just yelling at them about what dicks they are, and he just goes, don't interfere with my thing! He just says, my thing. <laughs> with my thing! It's like, did you forget the line, James? Like, was this improvising at this point? Like, but this all this all builds up to the like the reason I brought it back to the Pomeranian, and this scene, I just have to, getting to the queer horror of it too, and just the gorgeousness of Parker Posey's entire performance in this. This movie is like, the in the way that you watch Josie and the Pussycats now and you realize the comedy genius of Parker Posey in that movie, it's the same thing in Blade Trinity. When, after they get totally screwed over by the Night Stalkers at the police station, they can't take Blade, they're back at their vampire HQ and she's sitting draped on top of a table like she would a lounge piano. And she is like the night's chanteuse. Like, she's sitting on top of this table with her legs slung to the side. She just screams, fucking Hannibal King! And she, like, breaks an intercom by punching it, like, punching down onto it. And Triple H, Jarko is pulling an arrow out of his eyeball. And in an expression of just, like, how pissed she is, she just screams, fucking Hannibal King! And she just, for no reason, reaches over and punches a woman out of her chair. Just punches a woman in the face, knocks her out of her chair, and her brother Asher leans in and just goes, "Oh, what's wrong? You need a, you need a timeout, half pint. Fuck you, Asher. It is such a perfect throwaway moment. I'm like, did we just enter the family discord portion of Blink? <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck is going on here? She just, she just knocks somebody's ass out, and then once Jarco gets the arrow out of his eye, they make it a point. They have someone enter the frame to bring Jarco his dog, like." jarko's back we better get him the puppy like you know jarko has to have his dog when he's home somebody comes in they hand jarko the dog and they're like you know giving like you know human puppy kisses to each other it's like the intentional nature of the relationship between jarko and the vampire pomeranian in this movie is something that goes beyond one scene and is indeed a tracking element when we are in vampire hq And there's also just the fact of when we finally meet Drake, it's because Danica, like, is walking through Vampire HQ. She's descending a stair. There is an incredible, that incredible slow motion walk of Parker Posey panning from her feet up to her face, making the most just, like, blasé, apathetic, I don't know what that face is that she is making, as she is sashaying down these stairs in that tight-fitting, like, silk dress absolutely incredible work incredible
0: work i think that is what you're referring to is the patented parker posey face where she oh looks my God. both incredibly annoyed to have been forced to be there yes. and also at the same time a lot more fabulous and aware that she is the most like luscious yes. person in the room it's like, I am annoyed that you have to be admiring my presence amongst yep. you. It is yeah. annoying to me to share myself yeah. with you, yeah. even if it's just because we're in the same room
2: together.
1: But as long as I am here, I'm going to leave it all on the field. Because <laughs> I am partner Posey and I don't deliver anything less. I just, the uh, number of insertions of just kind of moments like that are so are so effective that I'm like, no, this movie had it. This movie knew exactly what it was doing.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially, and I think the moment where it just really hammers it down, it's not even the Vampire Pomeranian scene. It's the scene where Danica just tells everyone to stop making dick jokes because she is getting jealous.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's Which makes no sense. (laughs) It's triggering my envy. Can everyone just stop talking about dicks? It's triggering my envy like what and that happens in the scene that <laughs> happens in the scene where they are they're like physically interrogating Hannibal King and they're threatening him like give us the information about the night stalkers that the other and they're torturing him that there's that amazing moment in that beatdown scene where she just gets caught up and just like she slaps him across the face and like kicks him in the nuts the physical comedy of what she is doing in that scene at points with a cigarette hanging out of her mouth is so fabulous. Like, the way... I have replayed so many times just that moment where she is suddenly... Like, she's just staring at him like she doesn't give a shit. Then she's overwhelmed with the need to slap him across the face. The way her face changes when she hauls off and just whacks Hannibal right in the face, and then when she just, like, folds her body into him and kicks him. It is so funny. It is a spectacular moment of physical acting. Up against like the perfect, you know, you have the apathetic, fabulosity of Parker Posey up against the like deadpan dry humor of Ryan Reynolds. That scene works so well. Again, I don't know how people aren't having a fucking great time. I don't know. I don't know where at a certain point people decided they weren't having fun. But like, and this it, it's, it's all entertainment. And the the fact that like the, just the great dated moment. I just have to shout out of when they're about ready to go, like, start rounding up familiars. Um, And there's that, like, it becomes a montage, and they're in the car getting ready ready to go. And we're at a point in technology such that uh, Jessica Beale is making a playlist for her iPod, and we have to say, like, she likes making playlists when she hunts. Like, we're using, we're, like, deploying the word playlist. And she's, like, on her iTunes, manually selecting tracks to upload to her iPod. And then he cites... That that he cites trip hop it's like oh my god we are so we are in so many layers deep of 2004 right now and the and that she's going to do this whole scene in the lowest cut boot cut jeans imaginable like and and he blade even when he sees them he's like what the fuck is this how are you dressed what is it supposed to be tactical and it's like it's hilarious because that is what we thought tactical like that is what movies told us tactical was in that era was that like sexy kind of cargo but very fitted and functional things that also probably weren't so functional as they were just fashionable like the entire show terminator the sarah connor chronicles is built around tactical chic i love that show and everybody in it is so hot because they are wearing blade trinity-esque tactical chic apparel incredible I I (laughs) i love it I love, I so love it. And who could possibly look better in tactical chic than Ryan Reynolds and Jessica Biel?
0: I mean, honestly, I have a question written in my outline. It was like, do you think this film deserves for valuation? But I like I'm not gonna ask that because you, <laughs> you've just answered that for about an hour. <laughs> but Jordan, conscious of your time and to round up our 2 hour long conversation about the blade films.
1: I mean at least we got 3 movies in 2 hours this time instead of 2 movies in 2 hours like we did last. <laughs> time.
0: To be honest, I I think it's not enough time for all the blade <laughs> movies. But I was going to ask you kind of blade was massively important for many reasons. Mm-hmm. Um not least of them is because it was Marvel's I believe first massive box office mainstream success. I think it was, yeah. And it really I don't think it gets enough credit as the film that ushered in basically the you know the next 20 years of of big budget mainstream entertainment yeah. which is comic book yeah. movies so what do you think the legacy overall of the blade franchise is
1: it's such a fascinating question because the, the marvel machine has gotten so big that its legacy is so huge and, and what iron man means mm-hmm. to that franchise is so much that it, like he i think like he is sort of i think by the casual viewer considered like the original cell of the of the marvel machine and while he is of the mcu this is the beginning this was this was pre x-men this was like you said the next it 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 helped to catalyze the next 20 years 20 25 years of entertainment And, and the phase four is just starting it's been delayed by the pandemic but like All those movies, all those projects, including the new Blade that were announced at 2019 Comic-Con, that is yet to arrive in front of us. And it begins with Blade. It begins with Wesley Snipes. It begins with one of the biggest, most versatile actors of the 2000s, a black man who was adept across any genre that you could put him in. And he is while while he has had financial troubles and he his filmography is more populated with more like svod stuff now and you know fortunately you have something like dolomite is my name where you bring him back into a prestige acting role and he like will steal any scene from the people around him the fact that marvel has advanced how it is with without wesley snipes advancing with it is like fucking annoying it's really frustrating like there I I I off, I I in the way that we did on the, the screen drafts pod of, of Wesley Snipes, I want so much for there to be like a great cultural away. I want for there to be like a snipes Assance in the way that there was like a McConaissance. So like for him to get like a handful of really amazing, meaty roles or small roles in really amazing films that Do that thing where they spur everybody to go back and revisit the filmography to understand like, holy shit, this person's been here this entire time. I'm so pumped that they're getting a new act in their career where we can celebrate what they've done and they can have a high level of success, you know, recapturing the sort of magic of earlier days. Because he, the legacy of Blade is the legacy of Wesley Snipes. These movies are what they are because of what he brought to the role. And I can love Blade Trinity because of him being Blade. Because of his consistent amazing presence in this franchise throughout and I can I could even how I even how Blade 2 doesn't work with me how I can enjoy it as a GDT movie the fact that it is it does disappoint me as a Blade movie speaks to the necessity of Wesley Snipes for me in all of this because it wasn't giving me enough Blade versus Wesley Snipes and that's why it doesn't sit quite right with me because he's the core of it he's the most important thing and if you deviate from him well, that's an issue. I fully believe in Mahershala Ali to resurrect this character and carry it on with all the swagger and charisma and fucking stillness. God, if there is an actor that can capture the stillness, as you have pointed out, of that blade. It is Mahershala Ali. And just that, like, viciousness on a whim. But I just... The fact, too... It is so exciting for me as a, as a big genre fan, a fan of violent cinema, rated R, horror stuff. The fact that the original Cell of the of Marvel domination is an R-rated bloody ass like sexy action horror film is like hey bitches don't forget your don't forget how this all started and maybe you might want to invest a little bit more money in cool shit like that too like i know you're owned by disney now but like remember when this huge hit came out of the darkness and it was cool and it was fucking slick and there was a blood rave you have tracy lords in a bra with mercury in a white frosted everything tiny outfit like dance fucking in the middle of a blood rave you remember when that was a hit and when that gave you one of the great opening scenes in cinema history let's have more of that gay this shit up make it horror give me more blood give me profanity and yes put your Disney money behind it because the audience the the blade audience is waiting for more do not do not sanitize my next blade do not nice wash my Mahershala Ali blade because I will be so pissy if you do I'll be so pissed I don't need Grim Dark Justice League bullshit like that that like let's paint it super saturated in colors and call it meaningful no this 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 actually hits hard give me more hard hitting shit yes and not because men are crying but because they're badass vampire hunters and they just need to get out there and level righteous justice at the undead man
0: I mean the pen has dropped <laughs> everything's dropped.
1: Everything I'm just, is like, dropped I'm just like
0: sitting here it's like I know I can't make noise because this is audio but fuck right. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just wanted to clap while you were talking.
1: I feel very passionately about this.
0: I love it. The passion comes through. Good. Jordan, thank you, I mean, again, so much for... Thank you so much these-
1: for having me. I'm so glad to be back. I'm so glad to be back.
0: It's honestly just a privilege to hear you talk about something that you feel so passionately about.
1: I have, I have a gear that I can get into that is... <laughs> Pretty <laughs> assertive. That's pretty infectious. And it was just, I'm just so, I, I love Blade. And, and I have to shout out Action Twitter, which is like the best corner of film people on the internet. It's such a, like, it's just people recommending really cool shit to watch all the time. There's, there's, I don't really encounter much pretension there. I don't encounter like dick measuring. There's no, like, you should watch this, you should watch this. If you haven't, you haven't watched, you know, are you for real? I think because it's such a kind of disregarded segment of cinema. Like, Horror is definitely kind of like the trash kid of, of the the movie family, but there's still so much academic study devoted to horror. There are, there there are there are English departments that are devoted to horror. There's the Miskatonic Horror Institute. There's there's a lot of rigorous study devoted to horror, and I think action is sort of con, can you know consider the puff pastry of it all. When these films are substantial, they are works of art. They are magnificent. The the, the host of the uh, Adkins Undisputed podcast. He described in the podcast, the episode that I did with him, he said that it's, it's no different than it's just a, it's a musical like action movies are musicals, but it's just fight scenes instead of songs. And I was like, oh, my God, that's fucking true. Like these are these are these are balletic pieces that are put together for us. And I just so much want for people to celebrate these kinds of movies for all of the work that it takes to make them. and they, they aren't just puff pieces. They, they are incredible works of art. And you know when you can have an action horror movie that's marrying together like my two favorite kinds of movie you can possibly have, and then you put in act you put in Wesley Snipes who is probably one of my favorite actors ever. Like this is just me, 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 me. You give me Jessica Biel's arms and Ryan Reynolds' abs. Oh my God, Taylor made, Taylor made drag queen <laughs> Parker Posey as Danica Talos, like incredible. Oh, and, oh, and the oh the one last shout out to Blade Trinity in the way that like how we were talking about how like it always kind of expands the world just a little bit more the blood bank scene is so good in this movie the cuz like what we see in the first one is that they realize that familiars have been they have blood banks operating in the city where they're running blood bags to vampires for feeding but they've scaled up the operation by and i thought that was a really cool choice like that was the exact kind of escalation that felt really amazing in, like, how do we go further after, like, the incredible labyrinthine politics of the of the last one and what that could have given us with another sequel to escalate, like, oh, God, things have gotten so bad in the war, the invisible war between human and vampire, that they've realized they can scale up. They kidnap the undesirables. They, they snatch the, the otherized, the marginalized, off-the-streets, homeless people, junkies, people that society won't miss when they're gone. Nobody will miss them. Nobody will notice. And they, you know, in their mind, in the minds of familiars, quote unquote, cleaning up the streets by taking these taking these untouchables and turning them and putting them in blood farms, strapping them into sacks and then just bleeding out all of their blood slowly and continually like allowing them enough time to reproduce it, keeping them alive and on life support. But just turning them, turning human beings into blood factories and considering whole segments of the population so worthless as to go missing and not not be missed. That was an awesome scene. And the way mm-hmm. Blade like shoves that guy's head up against the bag. He's like, is this, like, is this really what you want to do? Is this who you are? You think there's a place for you at the table with these people? And that was, it's so vicious looking. And it's practical, like so much of it had to be practical and I'm sure was like paintbrushed in with like digital replication. But like the the structure of walking into that warehouse and seeing the blood farm, that was another one of those awesome Blade franchise moments where the world gets a little bit bigger and a little bit scarier and a little bit more intense. That was really awesome
0: i love it i love i just love, love listening to um, <laughs> I, I mean you know you can consider me uh, a new convert to blade trinity
1: Woo! we're doing it one at a time we're one at a time one at a time yeah
0: that's how, that's I mean, how good work I, is done
1: <laughs> i love it i love a reclamation um obviously i will never stop pounding the drum for jennifer's body and i'm happy to con- i'm happy to do the work for blade trinity
0: Love it. I look forward to the Super Yaki collaboration so I can continue yeah. to be financially ruined by you and your great reclamation yeah. process, Jordan.
1: Oh, Super Yaki, you're bankrupting us all. <laughs> all of us.
0: So Jordan, thank you enormously for your thank time, you. both for the off the record chat and for the, yes. for the recording. <laughs> but where can people find more of your work online?
1: Yeah, uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Jorker, J-O-R-C-R-U. And you can find me on Patreon, patreon.com slash Cruciola. And I also have, uh, I have my Disaster Girls podcast where I talk about disaster, just disaster movies uh, with my co-host Amanda and producer Jason. And then I make my Osterion podcast where me and my co-host, the filmmaker Sam Weinman, uh, are giving the Criterion level deep dive treatment to the horror movies of the millennium era Uh, around the late 90s uh, through the 2000s that even if you loved, you may have unfairly disregarded as insubstantial. And we are here to tell you, folks, there's a lot going on that you weren't realizing 10, 15 years ago. So if you like talking about the insane, insatiable, uh, toxic media climate of the 2000s, like we are doing a lot on the internet now and Mm -hmm. horror movies, we are up to that. So please do join us.
0: I mean, you know, I'm not a believer, but you're doing the Lord's work for the <laughs> yeah. new
1: Yeah, in the, the 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 Lord that we consider viable. <laughs> yes, I completely agree. Um,
0: Jordan, thank you so much again.
1: Thank you, Anna. I I'm happy to come back anytime. I love talking to you. <laughs> okay, I.
0: And that's it for this episode of the Final Girls Podcast. You can find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. If you can, please do take 30 seconds of your day. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot. It really helps out. You can find out more about what we do on our website, thefinalgirls.co.uk. Subscribe to our weekly newsletter over there and follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at The Final Girls UK. You can also head over to our Patreon to support us if you can and you want to over at patreon.com forward slash The Final Girls. And we're posting bonus episodes and more stuff over there. You can also follow Jordan at George Crew, and I am on Twitter as well at Anna B. Demented. Thank you for listening, and next week we will be going back in time to the 70s with a deep dive into the Bloodthirsty Trilogy.